I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the World Soccer Talk podcast, your weekly dose of talking about watching soccer on TV, online and apps. Coming up on episode 38, we discuss ESPN's return to the European club soccer rights business, news about new TV rights for being sports, our thoughts on El Clasico, the whole experience, and exclusive interviews with Taylor Twelman and John Champion. My name is Christopher Harris, a.k.a. The Gaffer, and I'm joined today by Kartik Krishnaya. Kartik, so uh, have you recovered yet from uh, El Clasico, Miami? Uh, it's been... A long week since that, uh, and, and the combination of El Clasico, Miami, and then the, the all the discussions of, of David Beckham and uh, that team in MLS, and of course uh, about Miami FC and, and Ricardo Silva. All of this stuff has just uh, uh, reached a um, <laughs> reached like a fever pitch. South Florida soccer right. has never been hotter, and I've got some I've got some news that I'll be breaking in the next few days about um, potential return of professional soccer to Broward County, just this little teaser. So there's just a lot going on. No, I haven't recovered to answer your question. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, I'm exhausted. All right. Well, let's, let's start off by um, what we've been watching. And uh, I haven't watched as much football this past week um, as n- normal, just because there's been so much going on in terms of covering the, the TV rights business, uh, El Clasico Miami, uh, the interviews we did with ESPN, we spent the day with them, and uh, just life, life, life on top of that. So, um, so we'll go through these, Kartik, and, and feel free to chime in too um, for the matches that you saw. So, uh, let's go back to El Clasico Miami. Uh, this one, both you and I were at the stadium uh, for the experience. Uh, you were there covering it. Uh, actually, kind of doing a feature story on uh, Next VR virtual reality and uh covering that for willsoccertalk.com so hopefully today or tomorrow we'll get that story up there in terms of that experience and what what it's like to actually watch uh the match in vr uh you you and i then were also there for will soccer talk in terms of covering it uh what were your initial thoughts about um, the whole experience and, and the game itself for those who knock South Florida as a soccer market 35,200 people paid to get into training on Friday I don't know if, where, where else in the world that happens or where else in the United States, at least. Uh, that was, to me, the most impressive takeaway from the weekend. I, I actually um, have to say that the, the game itself was really high level. I didn't expect that. I, I had been knocking this whole idea of friendlies and just on the podcast a few weeks ago. Uh, I guess when Real Madrid plays Barcelona, they don't have friendlies. And um, 
it was it was an intense game for 60 minutes. Obviously, the intensity dropped after um, both teams made a number of changes. Although, interestingly enough, Real Madrid uh, played Isco in the second half instead of the first, which gave them real opportunities to control the match after about the 60 or 65th minute. And Isco uh, sprung Real Madrid into action and forced Sillison, who, who, was play, who had played the full 90 minutes because Ter Stegen is still uh, post-Confederations uh, Cup break, uh, sprung Sillison into making some pretty good saves uh, to, to save the result. And again, uh, if it hadn't been Real Madrid-Barcelona, if it had been Barcelona playing... Uh, um, even Juventus or Manchester City in, in this tournament. I don't, I don't know that uh, Sillison would have exerted the effort, or I don't know that Sillison would have played the full 90, right? They might have gone with their third keeper uh, late in the match to give give uh, that keeper some reps. Uh, I apologize. I don't know who the Barcelona's third keeper is, but um, Valverde decided to go with Sillison the whole match because I think they wanted to win very, very yep. clearly. I was uh... and, um, and doing that. I, I was blown away by ESPN's coverage of uh, not just the, the game itself, but the whole event, uh, even going back to Friday nights and having uh, it was a long day on, on Friday. We you, both you and I, Kartik, as you know, were uh, traveled down to Hollywood and down to Miami to do a series of interviews with a lot of the uh, ESPN talent and, and behind the scenes staff. It was a long day. It was kind of a 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, day just driving around doing the interviews and enjoyed it. But. So for the the, the actual uh, training sessions, I ended up going home just to kind of yeah, be with my family and just kind of relax a little bit. And I switched on ESPN and I was blown away by SportsCenter, SportsCenter for like two hours, like just nonstop uh, live coverage uh, directly from the stadium. Of course, most of the discussion still was about Neymar, which at that point was kind of a, a breaking story. Is he or isn't he going to go? And what's the impact of that? And then you had the, the rotating cast of characters, everyone from... Gab Marcotti uh, to Taylor Twelman, uh, Max Bretos, um, and then also uh, NBA stars, uh, NFL stars. Uh, and a lot of them, were, I was like shocked, I mean, pleasantly shocked uh, at how much soccer knowledge they had. They were, you can tell that these athletes, uh, especially the NBA athletes, were really into soccer, have been watching it and, and know the game. Uh, and I was just stunned. I mean, I was like, this is ESPN. This is a Friday night, prime time. Uh, and, and then they back and see all the, the training happening. What was that? Yeah, I think I heard the number that there was something like. I think I heard a number that there was something like forty NBA and NFL stars at the game actually on Saturday. Wow! Yeah, and we saw a bunch of them uh, after the game, kind of um, in the the mix zone area, uh, and they they must have spent like what twenty minutes easily with Neymar. I mean, they were just hanging out, yeah. taking pictures, uh, talking, just chatting, and. Uh, I mean, then that would seem to be Neymar's focus. It also gave Neymar a chance to avoid his teammates uh, <laughs> after the game because, right, I mean, right, we, right. You know, everyone knows what's, what was going on at the time, and it's now been basically confirmed. Well, yeah, and it's still an ongoing, developing story too in terms of uh, what's going on uh, today. But um, the game itself, so we watched it, of course, uh, from the stadium, from the press box. Uh, we weren't able to watch the the TV uh, experience, but uh, quite a few times actually, I had the laptop there with me, so I had ESPN three running, and I was able to to listen in to John Champion and Taylor Twelman from time to time. Uh, oftentimes, and that's an experience in being in a stadium too. Is sometimes something happens, happens controversially. Uh, you don't have um, replay oftentimes in the stadium. So I would switch to the laptop to say, okay, what, what happened here? And, and, and the first thing that happened let, was uh, Neymar's Neyma, injury. Let me throw this in right now with the uh, ESPN FC show. Uh, the next 
day, both Giannis Mahalik and uh, and Paul Mar- not Paul Mariner, excuse me, Steve Nichol thought that perhaps Jairo Marufo incited Ivan Rakitic. You know, there was that controversy where Rakitic bumped Marufo, the official. Both the ESPN FC uh, analysts the next day thought that, from watching the game, that something that that the referee had actually incited. Um, that so that that was real interesting. That was not something I thought of when we saw that. We're like, yeah. we remember we we couldn't see a replay. Like, What's Rakitic doing? What's Suarez doing? They're in they're in the referee's face. But oh, when uh, they had the, uh, the scuffle, yeah, right, 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 yeah. And 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 that was the other thing too. So that, I, I mean, in many ways, if you're watching the game from, on television or streaming, uh, you've got a better seat than than we do in the stadium. I mean, we're watching in the stadium in real time. And there is no replays. So if I didn't have the laptop next to us to actually be able to, to listen in uh, to the ESPN commentary, uh, we would have missed a lot in the stadium. So, so and that's a great benefit of, of being at home on television. And also kind of the uh, ESPN FC show where you have the analysts kind of uh, looking at different situations and, and analyzing something uh, more, more deeply. But yeah, all in all, Kartik, I think it was a really... Uh, it was a great experience being there, uh, and uh, I was just, again, blown away by ESPN, and, and we'll get to ESPN in a little bit as far as some, um, some big news out of uh, the soccer TV rights business. Uh, anything else about El Clasico? Nope. Okay. All right. So, Kartik, let's move on to uh, Major League Soccer. Uh, I understand he ca- caught a game uh, last weekend, and what was that experience like? Yeah, TFC, NYCFC on ESPN. Uh and obviously, uh, uh, no, uh, not not the kind of buildup that ESPN had had for soccer the previous day, and didn't get the kind of number that uh, uh, that uh, obviously the, um, the 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 Seattle LA game was going to get right after El Clasico. Uh, but uh, the thing that just my takeaway from this game more than than the broadcast any of that is that I. I Javinko now for Toronto has become like this messy, messy like figure in MLS. He's so good that you appreciate his skills, but he's so, so good that he's drowning out conversations about other players and other individuals. Uh, uh, in the league, and and it's uh, one of these things. I, I actually handle uh, f- for the league the player of the week voting, uh, and every week I get the ballots. And if Dravinko has ha- scored a free kick goal like he did in this game, or he's done something spectacular, you're thinking so many guys had great performances this weekend. There were a lot of high scoring games in Major League Soccer, but so few people in the media vote for anyone else. We've all become mesmerized, like by Dravinko, the way I think people who, who follow world football have been by mes and Ronaldo for years and um, it's just getting a little annoying I mean I love the guy it's just getting a little annoying to be honest with you and maybe the other one that's in that category for MLS is David Villa same thing if he does something spectacular he's also playing in New York so that that furthers it it's just like oh Villa but there's uh, Mm -hmm. there are guys who do some really great things for Kansas City Colorado Salt Lake that don't get quite as appreciated yeah, for Giovinco, I mean, I think to me, he's the best story that Major League Soccer has in terms of uh, someone who's younger, someone with incredible talent, and someone that decided to to move to the United States, well, to Canada, uh, and, and play uh, Major League Soccer. And it's a great it's a great story, and I think it's one of those things that um, it's a little bit probably of lazy lazy journalism. I mean, it's just it's uh, someone they can pick that's uh, yeah. a, a good model for for the league, and uh, maybe perhaps it's a little bit of that in it, in it too. Um, in terms of some of the other matches I watched, Kartik, I watched the the last game of the International Champions Cup, <coughs> pardon me, which was uh, Roma 
against Juventus. Actually, it was a pretty exciting game. Uh, Derek Ray and Paul Mariner commentating on this one. And um, I didn't watch the whole match. Uh, it was on a Sunday afternoon. But it, from what I did see, I, I enjoyed. Uh, also, midweek, I watched um, the Audi Cup. I watched the uh, Bayern Munich against Liverpool match. And um, for those listeners who are probably wondering, like, hey, I didn't know that the Audi Cup was going to be on um, on U.S. television. A lot of these uh, uh, te- a, lot, a lot of these matches, it's, it's last minute, kind of the day before uh, announcements in terms of um, that it'll, it'll be on television or it'll be on streaming. So uh, at all times, go back to worldsoccertalk.com, and we're updating the schedules daily. And uh, Univision did show uh, the Audi Cup, and I saw, I saw the Bayern Munich against Liverpool match. Uh, Kartik, I was shocked at this one. I mean, it's, of course, it's preseason friendly. Um, it was essentially a semi-final of the tournament, but Liverpool won it three nil, and a thoroughly well-deserved victory for Liverpool. And uh, Sadio Mane's back, and then plus with uh, Philippe Coutinho and Mohamed Salah. The midfield for Liverpool looks stacked, so I made some changes to my my fantasy Premier League team on this one, but uh, they look really good. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of us forget that when Mane was playing consistently for Liverpool last year, they didn't lose many games, and in fact, uh, they were sitting right around second where Spurs and and, and City were, uh, maybe even ahead of City before Mane got injured, uh, pushing for second place before he got I'd heard, and then they had to hang on for fourth, right? The final day of the season, they had to beat Middlesbrough. But uh, the return of Mane is huge. Salah, I think, is a, is a big signing, even though he didn't work out at Chelsea, because he plays the kind of football that fits perfectly into Jurgen Klopp's style. Uh, this was interesting that this game was on Univision Deportes. I didn't realize it until I saw the highlights on the SPAN FC on Tuesday night with uh, uh, the UDN in the corner. I thought, oh my goodness, I could have watched this game live and, and didn't realize it. So, uh, good good get for uh, Univision Deportes. In the past, the Audi Cup has been on ESPN or ESPN2 in, in some years. So, uh, obviously, this is a, a tournament I think a, a lot of Americans are familiar with because Bayern, uh, American Bayern fans tend to watch it. And there's always seems to be one English team and, and maybe one Spanish team. Um, and AC Milan also sometimes. Yeah, and Liverpool went on to uh, the final and it lost to Atleti on penalty kicks. Uh, on Wednesday night, Kartik, um, I know that the, the Major League Soccer All-Star game was on, but there was the breaking stories um, that we wrote about, that I wrote about in terms of uh, the championship, and we'll get to that in a little while too in the news section. But uh, so I was, as the All-Star game was happening, I was running around um, getting quotes and getting uh, writing the story to, to break the exclusive. So I wasn't able to watch uh, much of that match. I did watch the last 10 minutes of it and uh, saw both of the goals and uh, 1-1 draw, went to penalty kicks. Uh, if I could sum up one word for the 10 minutes I saw, it was, it was probably anticlimactic. Uh, it was okay. It wasn't that entertaining, but it was. it is what it is. One thing, though, too, actually from the All-Star game is uh, it was the debut of the ref cam. And uh, I think it should be renamed uh, to the Vomit Cam because, again, it's one of those things that you're seeing the perspective from the, re- the referee, but as he's moving around, it's not a fluid motion. And uh, for the viewer, it just makes me want to throw up. Uh, <laughs> so um, I did watch a little bit. Actually, at the same time, I had the Miami FC against FC Cincinnati US Open Cup uh, quarterfinal on. And uh, this one was streamed live on the uh, FC Cincinnati website. And um, actually, the football was good, Kartik. I really enjoyed um, how Miami FC play. Very sexy football, uh, great possession. 
uh, entertaining team to watch. And uh, we're passing the ball around, like, uh, n- not Barcelona by any means, but but definitely um, I was really impressed by the level of, of skill there. But ultimately, they were outdone by, by a sucker punch from FC Cincinnati, uh, who won the match 1-0, and now go on to play the New York Red Bulls in the, uh, the semifinals. Yeah, FC Cincinnati, uh, one of the biggest stories in American soccer. Not only this U.S. Open Cup run, but uh, drawing crowds at their stadium consistently as a USL team uh, that are bigger than uh, than MLS crowds and, and are legitimately bigger. I've had that verified by by multiple people who've been there. Uh, that that uh, there's always some attendance number recording embellishment that goes on with all these teams in the in the United States professional soccer teams, but. Uh, FC Cincinnati's is, is maybe less embellished than some other teams, and they've got a real incredible atmosphere there. So um, I'm hoping they win the whole thing. Uh, we'll see what happens. They face the New York Red Bulls in, in two weeks, and uh, I think most people in the country are going to be rooting for uh, for FC Cincinnati that day. Yeah, definitely, most definitely. And uh, in breaking news, I have cut the cord, Kartik. I, I, I've been talking about this for I a few months. <laughs> can't believe it. I, I, I want. I, I want to do the same thing. It's it's convincing my wife that uh, we can save tons of money if we just dumped, yep. um, dumped cable completely. So so that that's what happened. Was that with AT and T? I'm sorry, with Comcast. I've had Comcast for probably about ten years now, and um, just in the last six months or so, the the especially the internet speeds have been getting worse and worse and worse. And especially in the summertime. I mean, I, I work from home. I mean, so for me, it's a full-time job, but um, I'm on the internet all, all day long in terms of uh, a lot of the work and research I do. But uh, what I found was that, especially in the summertime when the kids are out of school, I'm sure they're probably streaming Netflix nonstop. But with um, with with cable, with basically a cable modem, the, the speed was getting worse and worse uh, to the point where I was you know, being like an hour without internet, which was... Uh, which was which is an emergency situation for me because usually I would have to run someplace to get um, to connect to Wi-Fi. So I cut the cords uh, and I moved over to AT and T Fiber, which was just installed in my area, um, and so far so good. I was surprised, Okartic, by how easy the process was. I called up Comcast Xfinity, expecting it's going to be transferred to uh, to one of the the other departments and uh, be on the phone with them for about ten minutes, being grilled about why I was deciding to leave, etc. Uh, it was easy. I, I called and said, okay, I'm canceling. They said, okay, all right, thanks very much, and uh, have a nice day. Uh, except when I went then to take my the cable box and um, the actual remote into the local store to drop it off, to say, hey, thanks, here's the equipment, here you go. I got there. The wait was an hour and a half wait just to hand in my equipment. There were so many people there. I, I don't know if all of them were there just to kind of uh, cancel their, their cable, but I was I was like stunned about how many people were actually in there. And I decided just to, to kind of drop everything off and not get a receipt and just leave because I, I wasn't going to wait that long just to drop this stuff off. But uh, so far, my wife's been impressed. She's uh, we've got so we've got Sling TV. Uh, DirecTV now and Fubo and um, as well as Netflix and so far uh, I showed her how to use uh, Sling TV and has the DVR uh, uh, built into it we've got Cinemax we've got Epics we've got HBO so she's been going through there she knows how to um, find the movies record the movies set on the DVR and then watch them and so far I think from what what, uh, she's told me she's actually uh, likes this better than the cable setup 
So uh, now the season starts for the Premier League and other leagues uh, this weekend and, and in the coming weeks. I have to wait and see how that uh, impacts that experience in terms of being able to watch every game. But uh, so far, so good, Kartik. So uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe for your wife, too, there might be hope on the horizon. Yeah, and and, I, and I've told her that we can we can continue to get uh, if we get a, a rabbit ears, we can continue to get the over the air channels uh, over the air uh, like we traditionally did uh, forty years ago. So uh, the PBS, uh, I watch a lot of PBS. She does too. Uh, we can continue to get that. As far as uh, NBC, ABC, CBS, I mean, really for me, it's just the Premier League on NBC, and that's that's it. That's uh, uh, maybe watch the Masters on CBS uh, when when that comes around, and, and otherwise you can you can get all the cable channels uh, via the method you described or other other methods uh, mm-hmm. online. So um, it, it's uh, it, it's something I want to do, quite frankly, and I think more and more people are doing it, and. Um, it's something cable systems are aware of, and I and I think that this 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 segues nicely into um, our, our big news. But I know I know we, we've got to do a promo first. <laughs> One more thing, Kartik, and that's uh, for your area. So in the past two weeks, uh, YouTube TV uh, expanded to I think ten ex- extra cities nationwide. So my city, I live north of you, Kartik. Um, I can't get the local channels, but your city, you can. So if you check out YouTube TV, not only can you get most of the um, sports channels and things, but you can also get your local channels built in. So it's worth, I think they have a free trial, I think for, I think it's seven days. Um, So it's worth checking out too. Also other listeners too, if if you, there's so many options out there. So before we get to the big news, uh, uh, and actually there's a, there's a ton of news this week uh, from the uh, soccer TV rights business, I do want to uh, mention our sponsor, and that's SeatGeek. SeatGeek, uh, with uh, SeatGeek, you can buy tickets to sports and concerts, and it can be complicated, but there's a better, simpler way to buy, and that's with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. And there's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person. And SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and uh, it's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. Now, coming up in the next couple of months, there's some key World Cup qualifiers uh, the U.S. is, is playing and uh, throughout the United States. So there's an opportunity here for listeners to go ahead and use the SeatGeek app and to find uh, ticket availability, also prices, etc., uh, to see some matches in person. SeatGeek is designed to make your t- ticket buying experience easier than ever. It saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed. So you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. And best of all, my listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code WSTPOD today. That's promo code WSTPOD for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Now, Kartik, let's move on to the big, big news out of the soccer TV streaming rights business in the United States. 
Yeah, so uh, it was. I thought it was a perfect segue a minute ago because to talk about cord cutting, uh, this will be great for the cord cutters uh, if if you have access to ESPN three. Uh, BN Sports is out as the um, as the rights holder for uh, the championship and uh, English Football League and, and League Cup matches here in the United States and ESPN. Uh, and VamTech are in. Uh, everything's changing. Uh, we had reported a week and a half ago about um, about BN uh, apparently retaining the rights and, and putting uh, the programming on their schedule. Uh, then, uh, Chris, quite frankly, I mean, being around ESPN people, being around BN people uh, during Classical Week, uh, there began to be. Um, Maybe we'll walk through how we were <laughs> you got to how you were able to put the story in a few minutes, but yeah. uh, there, there began to be suspicions right away, right? A week ago, Thursday yeah. uh, and Friday, and on into the weekend, that something was afoot. And uh, on WorldSoccerTalk.com uh, on Wednesday night, we reported that uh, ESPN will be the, the the primary rights holder or uh, through the sub license from BAMTech uh, for the championship and uh, football league and, and uh, EFL cup, uh, formerly the league cup uh, this year. So um, that begins this weekend, starting tomorrow, what we're recording on Thursday, starting on Friday with uh, a match uh, Friday on ESPN three, you'll get two matches this Saturday and you'll get a match Sunday full schedule for August is on worldsoccertalk.com um, on the usual uh, page where you find uh, t- uh the feature landing page where you see um, a t- uh, the championship matches and and uh, and television, mm-hmm. and uh, I think this is a really exciting development because it gets ESPN back into the European club business, Chris, and it yeah. also makes the league much more accessible. I think BN did a, a tremendous job. I, I criticized them in year one of the contract for not giving it as much exposure as Fox had at times when they had the contract, but then years two, three, uh, four, I think they ended up having the contract for, was it five years, five years total. Um, they did a, a, a bang up job of showing games first thing in the morning. If there was no La Liga conflict, uh, showing the, uh, the EFL review shows. That's one thing I'm worried about. I'm going to, um, uh, I'm going to throw that out there and maybe this we'll discuss this in, later or get answers from ESPN in the next week or two. The, the, uh, the football league show, uh, BN would show, not necessarily at the consistent time, but they'd show it. Uh, and as far as League Cup matches, they would clear their schedule for that. So uh, even if there were uh, Liga matches midweek or Serie A matches midweek, uh, if there were La Liga matches, that was a whole different issue. But um, they did a pretty bang-up job covering the league. But now this takes the league, which has a lot of teams that are popular in the United States. Leeds United, Nottingham Forest, Aston Villa, Fulham, uh, Derby County, etc., Sunderland has a bit of a following from Sheffield all the reasons Wednesday. that also Sheffield Wednesday uh, takes them to another level in terms of exposure in this country that they've never been at, which I think is important for the league. And um, so yeah. this is uh, this is an exciting development, uh, but there'll be, of course, some uh, some answers that, that come out. And uh, it's also interesting to look at uh, BAM tech strategy in uh, acquiring these rights and the trend, and this is the big thing, is why the uh, the cord cutter discussion is so important. The trend of moving games from television 
to um, to streaming platforms. And and right now, uh, it, it very well could change, but no streaming platform has the footprint in terms of recognition, not necessarily in terms of, of penetration or accessibility, but in terms of um, recognition as ESPN3. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing there too. I mean, there's a lot to take in here. So BamTech is actually the one who acquired the rights to the uh, EFL Championship and EFL Cup. And then they went ahead and uh, sub-licensed those rights to ESPN. Now, BamTech, ESPN actually, well, Walt Disney uh, uh, Company is a part owner of BamTech. What is BamTech? BamTech is a technology company. Uh, They're the ones that... um, that are responsible for the the huge success that Major League Baseball has had on the digital side. So they're the ones that uh, have, have created the technology and the streaming platforms and all the great um, uh, technology, essentially, for to make um, MajorLeagueBaseball.net um, uh, so popular as it is and actually really a leader in in that space. But also in, in previous years, too, actually in the past 12 months, I believe, uh, they did the deal with HBO to uh, go ahead and stream the, the kind of the back in terms of the back end that that for like Game of Thrones and other types of things. Um, also, I think in, on the golf side, they've been in work there. So they're very much a technology company that's uh, focused on the streaming side of things. And like I said too, their um, part owners or investors in BamTech include Disney. So hence. Uh, Disney being the parent company of um, ESPN, so there's a, a great in there. So the um, so it's BamTech that acquired it, ESPN that uh, got it through a sub license, and now ESPN will be carrying it to the United States. And uh, we're expecting about three to four games a week um, on average. And then the EFL Cup starts up. Uh, I believe the first round is I think August 9th and 10th. I believe it is. But this is interesting, the Kartik, too, because uh, this happened. Uh, this, has been, this is a story we've been chasing for a week. So on last Thursday uh, on the podcast, uh, we got some uh, internal emails from BN Sports um, where they shared the schedules for the opening week of the season uh, for the championship. And they had in there listed, they had all the games listed, uh, the three to four that they show. Uh, some of them were going to be on BN Sports Connect. Some of them were going to be on uh, BN Sports, the television network. Uh, in subsequent days, they had additional emails that kind of updated the schedule with BN Sports showing it. So BN Sports, uh, either they were extremely confident that they would uh, renew the rights or they had, uh, in terms of the negotiations uh, with the EFL, uh, were led to believe that um, they were it, they were getting it. But then on Thursday, as we're driving to uh, the interviews with John Champion and Taylor Twellman, then I was hearing reports that uh, on the ESPN website, they started actually listing the championship schedule there for the opening weekend. So um, so when we met with ESPN that day, uh, kind of behind the scenes and uh, the PR people, uh, we had asked them, okay, I actually think this, I think this is going to Friday now. When we're, Yeah, this is Friday. We asked them, okay, so what's the deal with uh, going on about um, the championship and EFL Cup? And... Uh, we got back a no comment. Um, so on Saturday, which was the game El Clasico Miami, there we met some individuals from BN Sports and we were able to talk to them. They were confident that uh, the championship deal was happening. Uh, at the same time, we talked to some of the folks uh, at ESPN behind the scenes and they had no idea. They were completely oblivious to what was going on and had no idea of any of these discussions. And what we found to Kartik is that oftentimes the talent and kind of the producers 
sometimes are the, la the last people to know what's going on in terms of TV rights. Uh, they're the ones that will be told once it's, it's done. Okay, now, now you need to. One know. of the producers even told us that because we asked him the question, and 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 he said, "Look, I'm, I'll be the last guy to know. I mean, when they when they get the rights, I'll find out what yeah. you buy from you." Right. So that, that that's what happens there. And then ESPN removed uh, the listings from the website. So then, um, and at that point, still up until Monday and Tuesday. Uh, being sports was still confident that they were showing it. The schedule still showed that even on their website, uh, there was nothing on ESPN. And then I got word, um, actually two things happened. When, when I got word, one of my sources had told me that uh, ESPN and BAMTech were close to sealing a deal. And then thanks to one of our other writers, uh, Ed Perovich from uh, SoccerTVBlog.com, he was able to get a source from within being sports that said that um, they were losing the rights to the championship and they would not be showing it. So the two things came together, and then it was just a matter of um, some investigative journalism, following up with my sources, uh, contacting the, the championship, or EFL, contacting ESPN, contacting BN Sports, and, and others within the industry to try to get more details. Um, and then Wednesday night, uh, as the Major League Soccer All-Star Game was happening, Finishing up the story and uh, getting an exclusive quote from a uh, person on the PR people at ESPN uh, to share the details that, yes, they had acquired, uh, actually BAMTech had acquired the rights and had agreed a deal with ESPN for ESPN to cover the championship and uh, EFL Cup. So big, big news. I mean, it took a week of uh, chasing to get the story. But um, and then today, Thursday, uh, August 3rd, um, EFL has announced officially that uh, BAMTech and ESPN have the rights. So we were able to get the news out. And, and that was I was pushing really hard, too, because I was saying, OK, this, the, the season starts on Friday, August 4th. Here we are, August 2nd, the night of. I really need to get the story out there to let people know so that they have time to adjust their TV streaming plans to make sure they don't miss any of the championship games. Uh, added to this whole complexity, too, is iFollow from the EFL, which is their new streaming product. So we've gone, I won't go into more, any more detail, but on the website, it does have the FAQ about iFollow, what it is and how it works. And also on the championship TV page too, um, TV schedule page, we've got all the listings, as Kartik said, all the way through to the end of August. And it shows which games are on iFollow and which games are on uh, ESPN3. And uh, all in all, it's, it's great news for soccer fans in the United States. So Kartik, yeah, I, 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 sh I should note that there are clubs uh, that are not uh, participating in iFollow, like uh, I think Aston Villa is one of them. Yep, Leeds. Uh, Leeds is another uh, big clubs uh, that, that have big followings in this country, so just note that. Yeah, it's quite a few, actually. There's, uh, I think, Wolves, Middlesbrough, Sunderland. Actually, it's quite a few, so which is a shame. So hopefully they'll, they'll get their act together or they'll, they'll issue their own streaming product. Um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, so iFollow and ESPN3 is the way to go. ESPN3, for those cord cutters, uh, you can get ESPN3 through Sling Orange, and it's completely completely integrated into the app itself, so you don't have to go separately to the watch ESPN or ESPN3.com. You can just actually watch it from within your Sling app. Um, the winners and losers on this one, Kartik... Um, the losers, I think, being sports. I mean, this is a this is not a massive hit in terms of uh, viewing numbers, but it is a very European centric, very English centric uh, part of the audience. They're probably going to say, like, "Well, do I need being sports now? If you've lost the League Cup and you've lost the uh, Championship, 
And yes, you have La Liga and yes, you have Serie A and other games. But uh, from being sports perspective, this is a big hit. And, and I've been hearing kind of quite a few different sources as far as budget cuts at being sports. Um, this is kind of some worrying times in terms of uh, them losing this one out to, um, to BAMTEC. Yeah, no question about that. I think uh, they lose a segment of their audience uh, that keep being because they had maybe more than championship rights, League Cup rights. And they also potentially open the door for the floodgates uh, with other leagues uh, leaving and potentially uh, finding new television partners or new streaming partners in the United States. And, and that's um, it's been a struggle for BN to get on cable systems and, and they have to kind of claw their way to the point they're at. Uh, but they're still only on, um, on in 25 25- 28 million homes, something like that. And it's it's uh, just not enough market penetration as these leagues look to grow their footprint in the United States. So uh, this is, it may take a while, but I think that they're probably not the last league or competition to leave BN, unfortunately, for BN. Yeah, and uh, one of the winners in this one would be BAMTEC. I mean, this is their first foray into the soccer TV rights business. And uh, with the technology experience that they have, and especially the streaming experience that they have, this could be something in, in, in the next 12 months, Kartik, they could try to gobble up some other rights. We know that they tried to get the UEFA Champions League rights, uh, but Turner Sports got that. Um, the FA Cup rights are still out there, and there's probably a few other ones too, too, that, that they could get. They could conceivably have a strategy for next season 2018-19 where they have a over-the-top uh, soccer streaming package that would have the championship that would have uh, efl cup that could have say the fa cup perhaps or, or other leagues from around the world whether it's an all-in-one almost like a netflix type of situation to subscribe to watch all this soccer if they want to do that strategy or if they want to work uh, in conjunction with espn and have espn be the one that's um basically sub-licensing the, the rights from BAMTech. But uh, it gives them some good experience in the soccer industry, kind of to get a better understanding of how this, uh, how we think differently uh, than other sports and other sports fans in the U.S., but definitely a win for them. And uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, how, how it all comes off. Yeah, and, and just to remind people, I think uh, uh, BAMTech is, uh, is, of course, uh, a... a uh, Essentially, a joint venture between uh, uh, Major League Baseball's Advanced Media Division um, and and Walt Disney and and, and, and they, the NHL and the NHL and the NHL. Yeah. I forgot about the NHL, right? And they have uh, they have uh, uh, they handle the streaming for uh, the NHL for the WWE for Major League Baseball, uh, HBO, and now in the United States for uh, the football league. Definitely. So, if you have any additional questions about this whole news, uh, definitely check us out at worldsoccertalk.com. And let us know, and we'll get back to you there. Uh, in other news, Kartik, this is uh, some interesting news that kind of flew under the radar, but Dish has sued over Univision's decision to uh, broadcast uh, Liga MX games in English on Facebook. Now, this is something that uh, when it happened back in, what was it, the end of last season, uh, some eyebrows were raised. And uh, in terms of this, like, how is this even possible that Univision is able to actually uh, broadcast these, these games uh, for free, uh, stream these games, when you have other companies that uh, are you know, the Sling TVs of the world, the uh, Fubos of the world, um, PlayStation View, et cetera, et cetera, are uh, spending a lot of money to... Um, 
be able to show these these games in Spanish. Well, so there's there's a disagreement between Dish and Univision over the contracts and what Univision can and cannot do. But it could raise some alarm bells among other broadcasters and other leagues that are looking to uh, stream games to Facebook Live for free. Uh, so it could be an impact there, or it could be one of those things that um, they work out a deal. But still, interesting that Dish Network, uh, which is the owner of Sling TV, has sued Univision over the Liga MX Facebook uh, streaming. Now, Kartik, uh, on to other news in the world of soccer. The second division in Mexico, uh, Liga Asensio, uh, will begin working with uh, MP and Silva and Barral uh, to maximize the full potential of the league in the American market. And we've seen at times these games, when they pop up on American television, can get decent ratings, particularly if there's a popular team uh, that is relegated to the second division. The Coxa was in the second division for a couple of years. It's clubs like that, Leon, second division for a couple of years, they can get a, a decent number on American te- television. Um, there is a great opportunity for the league to grow in the U.S. Uh, given the size of the the uh, Mexican American demographic and just the interest even among American soccer fans in Mexican football, uh, the media rights package will include all home matches played by the club starting at the new uh, season, which began this month or last month, uh, July 2017, and it runs through the close of the 2021 season. So that's the clausura in 2020. 21. Uh, so essentially a four-year deal. This is a big deal, Kartik. Uh, in, uh, I think we mentioned it on last week's pod, but uh, probably about three or four years ago, Don Garbo was quoted about saying that there's too much soccer on television, which at the time we laughed at because we said that um, that's crazy. I mean, like it's, if there's enough demand out there, then, then I mean, the more soccer, the better. But uh, as with uh, ESPN3 getting the rights to the championship, making the championship uh, more accessible than it has been for many, many years, and now with this, with uh, Asensio, the, the second division Mexican league, um, with MP and Silva working uh, hard on the commercial side, but also on the media side in terms of trying to sign some deals to get the second division um, Mexican league uh, on the U.S. airwaves, whether it's television and or streaming, this could be a big deal. And, and we know that Liga MX is the most watched uh, soccer league in the United States by far. And we know also in terms of, uh, I think it was Dorados, or, uh, but the, the TV numbers from the Senso uh, from the last time there was the, the playoffs, uh, those were high. Those were, I think there were, what, 200, 300, 400,000 people that watched those games on Univision. So there's definitely an, an interest level there. It's been untapped. And I think for MP and Silva to move in on this one, to try to uh, give that league, that second division, uh, more accessibility could be a big, big hit for Mexican soccer fans, but also could be a big blow for Major League Soccer, as in here's another league on top of everything else uh, where it's going to be very accessible to watch and probably pretty entertaining. And and again, another second division, just as in the championship is a uh, second division league. Now, Kartik, moving on, uh, NBC Sports. This is a big deal, too, for fans of the Premier League. For the first time ever, is going to, for the opening weekend of the season, which starts uh, on Friday, August 11th, they will be in England. So the whole entire crew, Rebecca Lowe's going, the two Robbies, and uh, Ola White's already there, of course. Uh, And, of course, how could we forget uh, Carl Martino? So all of them are going to be there. Uh, Lee Dixon and Graeme Lasso are going to do the pitch sides and studio analysis, and we're going to have a uh, Ola White uh, triple attack of commentaries on the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. 
And then the Friday game, I think, is the uh, Carlo Martino. The Saturday game is Robbie Earl with Arlo White. And then the Sunday game is uh, Robbie Musto. And it's Arsenal Leicester, Brighton Man City, and um, West Ham against Manchester United. So you get those three matches. And of course, you're going to get about 21 hours of coverage from uh, the entire weekend, from having uh, the crew there based in England and having it be the opening weekend of the season. I think it's going to be just as... I mean, to me, Kartik, this is always one of those things we always look forward to the most uh, out of the entire season. And uh, to me, it's, there's just enough reason. Uh, th- I mean, there's so many reasons to watch this type of coverage, to see where, where they're at, what type of interviews they can do with the pitch side, uh, on pitch side with some of the players and managers. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. How about you? Yeah, I am as well. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really surprised NBC starting the season with uh, this trip to to uh, to England. Uh, obviously, it's a little bit different than what we've seen in past years where they've gone in April. They've had a couple of weeks to build it up. You're in the flow of the season, although you, in some cases you're hitting kind of that lull in the season where uh, – where things are becoming kind of monotonous and it, it provides a nice break from, from the Stanford studio and the, the crew interacting starting the season this way is, is a little bit, a uh, little bit different, but uh, Hey, I, I think it'll be, it'll be good. I think we'll enjoy it as viewers. I just want from NBC's experience and from their commentators experience, if uh, they prefer start, the season over there, uh, and let's say speak specifically of uh, the studio team of, of uh, the two Robbies and Kyle Martino. If they um, if they prefer starting the season there on location, or whether they r- would rather start the season in the Stanford studio, and even if they make a trip early in the season, maybe go uh, after that first international break, the the when uh, play resumes in September, something like that. So you kind of build into a flow for the season before you make that trip. So from a tele. Television perspective, I, I, I'm curious about it. And from a talent perspective, from a fan perspective, I'm sure we'll enjoy it. From a TV perspective, I think it's one of those things they want to make a big push at the beginning of the season, uh, especially where there being more and more competition on the TV airways uh, from the soccer side of stuff. And also with the concern that uh, the ratings did drop last season. So here's a big push at the beginning of the season, and they're probably thinking, okay, maybe if we give an extra push now, maybe that'll help us uh, throughout uh, the rest of the year. And also, too, I mean, with the Gold Cup uh, this past summer and the International Champions Cup, too, there's probably a lot of um, soccer fans that, uh, or actually sports fans, that are now starting to get into soccer. And I think for NBC Sports to come in really hard uh, opening week and just uh, try to win these fans over, this is a, a good tactic to try to get them uh, to be watching NBC Sports throughout the entire uh, season. Now, Kartik, uh, on to other news. Yeah, so the Bayern Munich Borussia Dortmund German Super Cup will be featured on Fox over the air network. That's very exciting news uh, for people who probably live outside the Miami Fort Lauderdale market, where I'm assuming it won't be on WSVN. Uh, but we'll check on that as as the time nears. But uh, exciting news that they're showing uh, this matchup. This is the one matchup in German football that seems to be able to drive television numbers and drive uh, drive interest uh, to, to levels that, that the other European leagues have. So uh, should be good and, and looking forward to it. And uh, in the opening of the show, I kind of uh, teased that uh, BN Sports are, have got some uh, TV rights news and uh, we can reveal exclusively on this podcast uh, I haven't written written it for the uh, the website yet. I will do uh, later today. Is that BN Sports is picking up the uh, Turkish Super League, and they're going to have uh, one match per round uh, from the league, 
and uh, some exciting some exciting news there for the, for the fans of the Turkish League. And thanks to uh, Ed Perovic from SoccerTVBlog.com for uh, the insight on this one. But uh, we'll be writing about it in more detail uh, today. That's uh, fantastic news, and, and the Turkish league uh, starts this weekend, of course, along with a, a few other leagues. Liga, uh, uh, of course, another VN property starting this weekend. Yeah, so so on the European soccer TV side, like you said, Kartik, this weekend, big weekend in Europe. So the Portuguese Premier Liga, uh, this one, of course, uh, this one has moved. So for those fans of Portuguese soccer uh, that who, who are accustomed to seeing most of those matches, if not all the matches, actually, on Fubo TV last year, uh, it's changed. So this season it's on, on Goal TV, and... Uh, the TV schedule for this weekend, so on Sunday there's two matches. Only one of those matches is going to be televised. Uh, so that, that match will be on Goal TV uh, with Sporting uh, Portugal uh, playing. Uh, it'll be on Goal TV. Uh, Fubo does have Goal TV, so uh, it's one of the few places you can get Goal TV. So they'll have that match. Uh, Fubo also has all of the home Benfica matches through uh, Benfica TV. So again, you can watch those there. As for next week's schedule, because actually there's a bunch of matches in the Portuguese league on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, Goal TV has not announced the schedule yet. So if you are a fan of Portuguese soccer, it's going to be a difficult season because Goal TV is often um, doesn't announce the TV schedule until just days before the matches happen. And uh, so as a result, we're not going to know until you know, sometimes you know, 24, 48 hours uh, sometimes 72 hours if we're lucky, uh, which games are going to be shown on Gold TV uh, and also Fubo TV. So you're going to have to have a lot of patience, but it looks like less games will be shown overall compared to last season, but it still will be televised. Ligue 1, uh, most of those matches uh, for the first couple of weeks of the season will be on BN Sports and BN Sports and Espanol. Uh, but uh, once the other season start kicking off, the majority of those will be on uh, being Sports Connect. Uh, Scottish Premiership, last but not least, um, that one, as of, as of this recording, it's still not on television. And uh, if you do want to watch uh, Scottish games, your best bet is to go ahead and subscribe to the streaming packages directly from each individual club. So Celtic TV, Rangers TV, etc., but uh, we're waiting for developments on that to see if uh, Fox does pick up any of those games on television. So far for the opening weekend, they have uh, zero. So, but that could change. Okay, so the latest numbers are in from uh, different cable channels and how many households are in. Uh, the biggest winner uh, this month, specifically when we're talking about channels that cover soccer, was FS2, which is great news because fewer and fewer people will be complaining about not having FS2 when a Champions League game is on there, or presumably a big international uh, is on there. Uh, it's up to uh, 52 million households. Uh, biggest loser this month was ESPN2, which lost 2.5 million households. They're now down to 66 million homes in the U.S., which is uh, getting into kind of dangerously low territory, uh, honestly, for a channel like ESPN2, where uh, ESPN broadcasts much of its soccer. And actually, Kartik, I think that was actually a typo on my part. I, I apologize, uh, listeners, but actually it's ESPNU. I'm sorry. ESPNU is the one that's, uh, that lost the 2.5 million households, and they're now down to 66 million. Now, they, show a fair, they share a fair amount of soccer as well. They do. They do very much so. 
All right, so let's move on to TV ratings. We're not going to go through everything. Uh, we will have the entire list at worldsoccertalk.com for the past week, uh, all the games that we could uh, get access to in terms of uh, the TV numbers. Uh, the big one to, to lead us off, Kartik, was uh, 1.7 million for El Clasico Miami. Uh, this was on ESPN in English, and then ESPN2 in Spanish, and ESPN Deportes in Spanish. And uh, it was pretty much the same number, it was 1.7 million, as the USA-Jamaica Gold Cup final on FS1. So uh, before the match, I think, Kartik, you and I kind of tried to predict what the viewership would be for this one. I said it has to be over a one. I said ideally it would be two, um, but it came in at 1.7, which is, which is pretty darn good for a match that there was uh, a lot of people were hating on, saying this doesn't mean anything. This is meaningless. Why? Why? This is a waste of time. But 1.7 million uh, is pretty <laughs> decent. And that, that's that's interesting. The 1.7 million for that, and obviously the Gold Cup final, because I think uh, it's showing that there is a there's now, and maybe it was just fortunate because it was in the same week or back to back weeks uh, that there was um, really same week Wednesday to, to Saturday a consistent audience for. Uh, summer soccer uh, games at, 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 at a uh, at a high level or, or which are perceived to be important matches so that's uh, that, that, that's a good sign for the sport because uh, there was concern at least in in these quarters my quarter in my mind about the drop in Premier League numbers last season and was that going to be a harbinger for kind of a drop across the board uh, for European football and international football and with the Gold Cup and uh, with Confederations Cup uh, Gold Cup and uh, and now uh, El Clasico Miami and ICC we see that that's really not the case. Uh, other numbers, so the U.S. women's national team, the Tournament of Champions game against Brazil, which was on ESPN2 on, on last, last Sunday, that had 643,000 viewers, a good number there. The Atlanta-Orlando game, which was on the uh, the Big Fox, the over-the-air Fox network on Saturday, uh, had 478,000 people. Uh, LA Galaxy against Seattle on ESPN uh, was on Saturday, and that was uh, 397,000 viewers. And then uh, uh, AS Roma against Juventus, that last ICC game on ESPN on Sunday, that one had 326,000 viewers. So, Kartik, let's move on to listener mailbag. Uh, this one, first one is from uh, Uday, and he posted this on worldsoccertalk.com. And as, as we go through it, Kartik, we, we might stop in different parts of the letter to answer him specifically. It says, hello, Christopher and Kartik. Great job in creating your podcast. I am a regular listener to your podcast, along with uh, MLS, ETR, and Soccer Nation. All three are fun to listen to. With regards to your most recent podcast on Summer Friendlies, MLS, and ProRail, I value your opinions, but I have some friendly disagreements. Uh, number one, I think MLS has done a, a decent job in trying to make USA a top soccer pr- country. The business model uh, they have chosen is a direct consequence of the past bankruptcy of NASL. In the 1980s, NASL was the top league, but they completely uh, misread the soccer market, overcommitted financially, and went belly up. What revived the top soccer league in USA is the 1994 World Cup and USA winning uh, the Women's World Cup in, in the United States. This created organic interest in professional soccer in America. Uh, When MLS was created, they made a brilliant move by going through a conservative business model with tremendous parity in the league. I must say no other soccer league in the world has the same parity as MLS. This is great for all the teams because the, the games are competitive and entertaining. 
The current MLS business model will be successful um, until they reach their full capacity of 28 teams or maybe 32 teams like the NFL. So we just need to be patient until that point is reached. After that point, we do need to introduce ProRail to make to take it to the next level. But we have to compensate the teams that go into go late into uh, MLS and put $150 million dollars uh, franchise fee and then pay that. Uh, number two, ProRail should be tried out at Division two, three, and four. Let's see how that works and learn from it under American conditions. Uh, I think there is already some effort going on this front. I fully support this. Uh, three, friendlies. I live in the Bay Area and have watched the earthquakes, uh, the USA and the Copa uh, America and the Gold Cup and a friendly. The crowd that you get in the summer games are not MLS. Um, it can be very deceiving. Uh, in the summer here, here there is uh, no competition from college sports, NFL, NBA, and NHL. The friendlies attract diehard foreign club soccer fans. And some fans like me who are very curious to see the top uh, league teams play. But crowd size that you see at the University of Michigan is not a true gauge for a sustainable local club. The crowds that you see at Atlanta United and Sounders FC are true indicators because this is organic local interest. These are people born in America, many young people who are interested in made in America. Uh, people like you are elite soccer watchers, and you can distinguish the nuances of Barcelona's level of play versus get the Galaxy. But for people like me, I want to watch a competitive soccer match that is entertaining. So the interest that we are seeing in the friendlies is a false indicator. Uh, those are one-time events per year, and that is why people are willing to pay high, higher ticket values. Ask the same people to pay the same amount for 20 uh, games a year, and I, uh, I doubt uh, we will be able to, to fall to fill uh, NFL stadiums. We have to be patient for the game to grow organically. Uh, cheers, uh, Uday from uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of he said. First of all, I mean, this is my issue with people who bag on MLS. I, I critique MLS, but I watch it. There are people who tell me and, you know, openly fighting with me on Twitter even yesterday uh, that it's uh, uh, if you if you care, if you're into reform, if you're into um, into uh, open systems and promotion and relegation, you shouldn't be watching MLS. You're enabling the enemy. They're like. Hitler and Stalin rolled into one. Look, I, I just want to enjoy soccer. I'm a soccer fan. I get the ideology. I support open systems. I don't like the way MLS is structured. I understand why they structured that way after the failure of the ML, uh, NASL. But we're 20 years on in the business. We're 20 years on in soccer sophistication in this country and understanding the sport to where we want the league to change its structure. Uh, but that doesn't mean I should deprive myself of watching major league soccer and supporting um, a local major league soccer team and, uh, and, and uh, boycott everything they do. They do. They're doing a much better job of developing players now with the investment they put in development academies. That's something the NASL, which is the uh, standard bearer for a lot of these malcontents it has no interest in doing them no interest in developing players um our former colleague on this podcast napoon chopra um revealed the statistic that the nasl is actually the oldest league in the world in terms of average player age because um they just sign journeyman players and then their fans jump up and down about not being treated fairly but they're not really investing in growing the american game uh, because they're not investing in young players and player development so a lot i agree with here but uh, the thing I would push back on what Uday is saying is that 
I think we're more sophisticated in this country than we were 20 years ago uh, because we we have exposure, as we talked about earlier on this podcast, uh, to all these leagues around the world and the Internet age and and, uh, books about soccer and reading about soccer online and reading publications like uh, Jonathan Wilson's Blizzard. We know how the sport is structured abroad. We know how the sport works abroad. So uh, MLS has to has to acknowledge that. And if they're going to grow the sport to the stage where it can potentially grow to in this country, they're going to have to open up. Uh, but I, I agree with him. I don't want to come across like, um, like I, I don't appreciate what MOS has done for this country, for the game in this country, because I do. And that's a big part of my issue with, uh, the people who are big, uh, Ricardo Silva fans and big, uh, NASL fans that they have no appreciation for the amount, for the the tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars MLS has spent on growing the game in this country and on uh, trying to develop players and keeping a viable top flight professional league in this country, which which uh, we had proven we couldn't do uh, in the past, mm-hmm. uh, a stable top flight professional league. So, yeah, a lot, a lot I agree with, actually, in his uh, in his comments. Santos uh, also posted a comment on worldsoccertalk.com and he says, I try to remain calm when I listen to you guys because you guys, are, you guys care about the media, the landscape of the sport. Some, but sometimes you guys are not as informed or have tendencies to offend many groups of people. Uh, patriotic comments about Fox commentary. It's for American men or American women's team fans. Uh, the same kind of commentary can be found on Argentinian TV or Peruvian TV, uh, if you guys know Spanish, and uh, or also the same for England or Wales TV crews. Um, there's always at least one patriotic network for any country's teams. While I might not like Fox, I get why they do it. So let's relax or turn down the Fox bewilderment for a bit. And let me just step in on that one, Kartik, too. I, I, I definitely realize that, uh, I mean, I've watched uh, England matches from England. I've watched Wales matches from Wales uh, and, and other countries. kind of. Um, but I just think Fox goes over the top, takes it too far to the, such a point where there's hardly any analysis or coverage or focus on the other team. It's well, that's, that, that was going to be my point, is that I think that they do it a little worse than uh, they. And I agree, actually, with Santos about some of the, the, the crews in Latin American countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Fox takes it to the point where they don't respect the opposition, uh, unless it's CONCACAF opposition. And sometimes you have to build them up and they have no context for who. And this is a this is a critique I'm going to make of Fox because they've done a couple games recently. They have no context of who the Honduran team might be missing when they're playing the United States. They, yep. they, and, and what the transition might be like in Honduran football the last uh, three years and what Pinto was facing managing that team when they broadcast that game. Same thing with with Jamaica uh, in the Gold same thing with opposition in the Gold Cup. So I think it's um, it's one of these things where Fox, even in, in our own region and CONCACAF, they're not paying that close to attention to the guys uh, who play for for, um, for teams that the U.S. is facing who are not, and this is important, who are not based in Major League Soccer. I just don't think that they they make the effort. Now, at times, ESPN hasn't, has, hasn't been a, a shining light either. I mean, I, I remember, uh, speaking of Honduras, in 2009, the, the U.S.-Honduras game in Chicago, uh, on ESPN, which I believe was J.P. Delacamera and John Harks, and Harks just kind of glossing over the fact that Honduras was missing four or five starters and prominent guys, guys like David Suazo. Um, so maybe maybe we pick on Fox more than we should because ESPN has made some of these same mistakes in the past, but we're seeing it now from Fox is the point. 
And Santos continues. He says, as for the ICC over Gold Cup competition comments, very insulting, to be honest. Uh, while, yes, there are squads that are B or C or D, uh, they push themselves. You saw the Jamaican players at the end of the game on, on the floor, in defeat, almost in tears. Uh, you know they wanted it. So to say that these kind of comments is truly insulting. We get, though, that the Gold Cup may not be your taste, but there are others who care about uh, these, these kind of tournaments. I'll keep listening to you guys, but work on your coverage and comments. Let me, let me answer that. It actually is my taste. I used to watch the Gold Cup as religiously as I watched the World Cup because it was something the U.S. could actually win. 2003 uh, Gold Cup, 2002 Gold Cup, uh, which was uh, in, in the winter, the last Gold Cup in the wintertime. I watched more closely than I watched the 2002 World Cup. Uh, 2005 Gold Cup, I watched uh, as closely as I watched the 2006 World Cup. 2007 Gold Cup coming off the t- disastrous 2006 World Cup. I can still remember my excitement for the first game. I flew out to Los Angeles for the second U.S. game against TNT, but my, the first U.S. game against Guatemala, Max Bredo's voice coming on Fox Soccer Channel, like, we're back in a major competition after the flameout the previous summer. I used to take the Gold Cup very seriously, but what's happened to the Gold Cup recently is that the Gold Cup in the in the World Cup qualifying years. So 2009, uh, 2013, and 2017 have become a joke. Um, 2007, 2011, 2015, 2015 absent the, um, the, um, the Matt Geiger um, officiated game against Panama, have been good tournaments, good tournaments to watch, important tournaments, tournaments with eight teams. CONCACAF is into making money for small Caribbean islands. They're into... CONCACAF things. So we keep getting the 9, 13s, the 17s. We'll have a tournament in 21, for uh, no doubt. I, uh, I I sympathize with you, Santos, because in 7, 11, and 15, I took the World Gold Cup very seriously. 15, it was a good tournament. 17, it was awful. 11, it was a great tournament with a great final at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. 13, it was a joke. And I know Americans don't want to hear that because the U.S. won on Brett Shea's kind of fluke goal against Panama, but it was a joke. In two. 2013, Mexico, the best country in this, this confederation historically, even though they were going through a tough struggle at that time, they sent a team whose most cap player had 11 caps, Rafael Marquez Lugo. Um, it's not a serious tournament in World Cup qualifying years because you have the majority of countries that are serious contenders to win the Gold Cup. Jamaica is an exception this time because um, they didn't make it to the hex because they were in a tough group with, with Costa Rica and Panama, but the majority of countries who are serious contenders to win the Gold Cup sending B or C teams because they're in the middle of World Cup qualifying. That's my issue. And, I, and I'm sorry, Santos, that I didn't articulate that more forcefully in, on earlier shows, but the Gold Cup is a joke in World Cup qualifying years. I will stand by that. I will look forward to the tournament in 2019 and will probably uh, um, make the similarly, quote, insulting comments in 2021 because <laughs> there's no need for the... There's no no confederation other than a couple of african nations and that should be revisited also um continue to do this every two-year thing and yeah. as far as the cup of african nations i think it's a conversation for another day but i feel similarly about them having um uh, competitions every two years but they do it for the same reason so that they can replenish the coffers for for poor african football federations and i get that but competitively i don't like it and it's one of those things, Kartik, in previous years, the Confederations Cup was always the joke. That was the tournament that everyone kind of said, oh, psh, this is a joke of the tournament. Why even have this? But this year, I mean, the Confederations Cup to me was more exciting than the Gold Cup. 
which says a lot. Uh, but going back to Santos's comment about um, the B, C, or D players, uh, it's not that they weren't trying, and definitely the determination was there. Uh, these are players that definitely gave it their all. So from that point of view, I, I completely agree. Uh, we weren't inferring that uh, it was a joke because of the way these well, teams played. I think part of part of the issue is, and, and Santos might be able to appreciate this, is that um, the U.S. Uh, fan, uh, U.S. fans and, and, and Fox, and we just talked about Fox with him. Uh, they have a um, they have a tendency to look down on other Concacaf nations, and so part of my problem is I had to point out to everybody. Here's Jamaica's regular team. Here's the team they, they beat, uh, beat us with in 2015. Uh, how many guys from that team are on this team? Uh, oh, no, no, it's an A team because they're not. No, it's a Jamaican B or C team. Mm-hmm. Calm down. The U.S. B team is not beating a Jamaican A team. Okay? And that's, I guess maybe that's where maybe I uh, go o- over the top with my critiques of the Gold Cup because U.S. fans aren't willing to acknowledge Panama didn't really send an A-team to this firm. They had some A-team players. Yeah. Costa Rica cycled out uh, whatever really high-end A-team players they had uh, that were, are playing at big European clubs, Campbell, Oviedo, etc., uh, cycled out uh, after the group stage. So that's part of my issue with it, is that American fans and American writers and American analysts, because they want to build up the U.S. men's national team and all their accomplishments, and they, they get into this faux nationalism thing every time there's a major tournament. And even though I support the U.S., I'm openly saying that I, I took Gold Cups as seriously as I took World Cups once upon a time. Um, they tend to be the ones who, who, who slag off those other companies half teams and basically say, ah, you know, they're, they're playing an A team and they're not very good. Well, no, they're not playing an A team. Mm-hmm. And Jamaica, that team was nothing like a, a team for Jamaica. And Theodore Whitmore did a fantastic job. Uh, and if Andre Blake hadn't gotten hurt, they might have beaten the U.S. And that probably would have been justified, honestly. All right. So if you guys have any comments or questions or disagreements <laughs> or, or something you agree with us on, let us know uh, through the different channels, which should be email is web at worldsoccertalk.com. Uh, Twitter is wsoccertalk. And then Facebook is facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk. And uh, we'll do our best to read out those uh, comments and questions and feedback on air uh, on the next episode. Now, Kartik, moving on to our feature topic of the week. We're going to do things a little bit differently this time. We're going to uh, play our interviews that we did with uh, John Champion, and Taylor Twellman uh, that we conducted with ESPN uh, late last week, right before, actually the day before El Clasico Miami. But the topics they discussed, we we purposely uh, didn't focus that much on El Clasico Miami because we wanted these uh, interviews to stand the test of time. And uh, with John Champion, we went one way. Taylor Twellman, we went another way. But uh, what are some of your thoughts or or some of the things that you're looking forward to uh, listening uh, on this pod for, for other listeners to, to, to tune into or some interesting observations. Yeah, I, I think uh, just talking to John Champion about his um, his background and commentating and how he got into it and radio and convert and, and moving from radio to TV, uh, the the um, the kind of circumstances under which he started his radio career. I think that's going to be fascinating for everyone to listen to. Uh, also, the impact of John Motson on his career. Uh, what's his na- uh, regular weekly routine when he calls matches? Um, what are some of his great memories in, in calling matches? Uh, 
in England, in the Champions League here in the U.S. now, the last few years, etc. I think that will be uh, that'll be enjoyable. Now, as far as Taylor Twelman's concerned, there's a lot there. There's a lot to talk about, as there always is with Taylor Twelman, the preeminent voice in, in my mind of uh, in American soccer. So uh, you can chew on things with Taylor Twelman. We finish up, and I, I think this will be interesting to a lot of people. We finish up talking about head injuries because obviously. That's a subject near and dear to his heart. And um, the, what, what, how he answered my question on that was fascinating. I did not realize um, the extent to which, and I'm, I'm kind of heartened by it, although we want to see action taken, that some authorities in Europe are serious about dealing with the, the situation with head injuries. Of course, the flip side is UEFA and FIFA aren't terribly serious about it. And that's something all of us out there need to need to band together and and push for. Um, I think all, all too often we wait for uh, a head injury in a match, someone to suffer a concussion, uh, an incident like Hugo Lloris at Spurs a few years ago when AVB was managing them and put him back in the game. We wait for that to talk about this issue. Uh, this issue should be talked about 365 days a year until FIFA uh, gets some common sense and puts player safety first. For me, uh, for Taylor Twelman, the interview, his answer to the question about uh, what impact or what can MLS gain from ICC uh, was an interesting part of the conversation where that really threw him off. And uh, he he went through some good reasoning and circled back, um, was at a loss at first, but I think came back with some pretty uh, some strong statements in terms of what MLS can gain from ICC in terms of uh, all of the, these teams being here. Uh, with John Champion, it was uh, illuminating uh, how much uh, time ahead of time they know uh, which games they're going to be covering. So he shares some great insights in terms of that, in terms of his schedule and how far in advance uh, he knows which matches he'll be doing. Um, but at the end of the day, I think John Champion, what, a, what an incredible uh, gentleman, Kartik, uh, giving uh, us so much of his time uh, on a hot, balmy day. Uh, the audio quality isn't the greatest. Um, so the John Champion parts, you can hear really well. Uh, Kartik and I are a little bit more soft-spoken. But w- what it was is we were outdoors uh, in the shade um, next to, not too far from a swimming pool on the beach. So we were right beachside in Hollywood, uh, Florida. So there's a little bit of background noise, but uh, be patient. Uh, John speaks up uh, very uh, loudly and eloquently. So um, definitely uh, perfect to hear there. And the 12 minute interview was uh, conducted indoors. So the audio environment was a little bit better, but still um, both of them uh, true leaders in the different areas. And it was a pleasure to speak to both of them. And it's, it's going to be a pleasure to share these interviews with you, uh, the listeners. All right. So we're here with Taylor Twelman. Taylor, the first question I want to ask you is that uh, in many ways, Kantik and I, I think, agree on this. We see you as very much a modern co-commentator and analyst. So somebody who's uh, very uh, opinionated, but also very active on social media, uh, has great contacts, great network, is oftentimes breaking stories on social media. And uh, in terms of the way you kind of analyze games, too, just a a very modern, fresh perspective. How How do you... It's a good question. For, for El Clasico, I mean, El Clasico for this weekend. I mean, in terms of preparation, in terms of the way you think about this game, what goes into this? Uh, preparing for the ICC games is like preparing for, uh, I compare it to when you're in college or even high school. The first day of class, you have to prepare for the final exam that's the next day. I literally just looked at my labels. I have 61 player labels ready for the game. Because of substitutions. For instance, I did uh, Man City, Real Madrid the other night. Three players weren't on their roster sheets. Mm -hmm. And so Oscar, on the roster sheet as 23, comes in as number 32. So I look at Adrian Healy and I put my hands up going, 
here we go again. It's just ICC. So right. I think what you try to do is prepare for the first half yeah. as if it's a real game. Right. You have your storylines, major talking points. The second half is really a crapshoot because yeah. you may get that player that know nothing about, a lot of young players. But that's also the time where I first saw Harry Kane. Yeah. It's also the time I first saw Romelu Lukaku. So I try not to overflow that with info right. and just let the game kind of go and maybe we talk big picture. Uh-huh. But I remember a goal Harry Kane scored, and now I reflect on that three years later when he's arguably the best striker for England. So right. there yeah. may be a moment, Diaz the other night scored yeah. a great goal left-footed for Man City. I looked at it and said, you know what? We're probably going to remember this three, four years down the line. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, they really are the hardest games to prepare for because they are quote-unquote glorified friendlies. Mm-hmm. And that's what they are. Yeah, yeah you uh, you referenced that, that, seeing Harry Kane when you called yeah. that DS goal the other day and then Oscar scored a couple minutes later. Uh, take us through your routine during the week. You call uh, generally one MLS game a week. Yeah. Yeah. And what what is your week of prep like leading into that game? Um, so usually our games are Sunday. So let's say the game Sunday, I'll fly back to Boston Monday. On that flight, I'll try to watch one of the teams I'm doing the following weekend, their game, over. And then I'll watch the other team. And then ultimately what we try to set up is I try to, you know, we don't have the fancy stuff that Monday Night Football does, a touch screen or whatnot, but try to set up some tactical point of the team and then show that at the beginning. I'll reach out to coaches, reach out to players, uh, but a lot of that I like to do face-to-face unless there's Jonathan Dos Santos being signed, right? Then you want to build drama and whatnot. But a lot of it I want to do face-to-face because if, one, a coach or player has um, an issue with something I may have said in the past, I'd much, much rather do that face-to-face because then they know where I'm coming from. But more importantly, I know where they're coming from. So I like to do a lot of my stuff face-to-face. But a lot of it is... Uh, watching previous games because to your question I'd rather give my point as opposed to someone else's. Now I'll get good the coach can tell me I'm wrong, I have no problem with that, but I still want the viewer to know this is what I'm seeing and then go from there. So before you talk to the coaches and you watch training... I'll have two two things tactically for both coaches before that, Yep, that I've noticed a trend and MLS is you know, it's on par with the other leagues where things change. You know, Caleb Porter in 2013 was a coach that went after it. Didn't matter if he lost games 4-3, yeah, right. he went after it. Well, two years later, he's more pragmatic about things. So, And even within seasons, you can see coaches go to three center backs. They'll play wing backs. All that stuff that we all love to talk about. Yeah. So that happens in MLS, even though the general public wants to believe that it's just roll it out and play. Coaches are still tactically trying to get at games, and that's where I'll try to have two questions for each coach on what they're trying to get out of that game. How has uh, your style of commentary been received by coaches and players in MLS? Uh, maybe more by coaches. Uh, you're much more um, much more attuned uh, to world football in many ways and, and tactical trends than a lot of the other commentators, yeah. commentators that do MLS games. Well, the good thing for me is I'm not that old yet, and those coaches still remember me as a player. You played against a lot yeah, of them. Right, so they all... <laughs> Except for Jay, you played yeah, with him. Yeah, exactly. I played with Jay. Um, played against Jesse Marsh, played against Jay. I played against everybody, and even played for Bruce Arena and Bob Bradley, for that matter. Um, I haven't changed, so at least they have a good background that, listen, you can tell him anything, you can tell him everything, it can be on the record, it can be off the record, 
Uh, but one thing's for certain, he's going to give his opinion. And that's what I try to do is give my opinion, but also be access open to anything you think I'm wrong. I don't care. Never has bothered me when someone comes to me as a player, even more so now, I just I don't see it that way. No problem. So I think it's well it's respected, but I'm also sure there are times where they're listening to it, going, "God, why is he talking about that point?" Doesn't bother me. How is uh, working with a lot of European-oriented commentators, a lot of European-oriented analysts, work for you? Because uh, when you broke in, obviously you had you were you were learning the ropes. Yeah. You had a, a style. Your style still, has evolved. I'm still learning. You're always learning, right? Yeah. But your style has certainly evolved to the point where. From my perspective, I can't speak for Chris, I can't speak for everybody, you're the best American commentator we produce. Uh, and that's something I'm very proud of as an American, yeah. that you've been able to take your game to the level that European fans, people who are Americans who wa- only watch European football, expect commentators to be at. To your question, that's ESPN. It's not me. It was what ESPN did. So, But, I, but did you have to work harder uh, than... Of course. Yeah. It's no different than when you talk to the American player. Ask Alexi Lalas about being an American player trying to play in Italy in 93, 94, 95. Like, it's still... Ask Landon Donovan about playing in Germany. It's, it's that kind of thing as an American commentator. I, have, I don't have an accent. So I could say exactly what Steve McManaman's going to say. It just sounds better because McManaman said it and he played <laughs> right, at Liverpool. Right, right. But we could say the exact same right. thing. I knew that the moment I was interested in doing this. What I give ESPN more credit than any is they constructive criticism from day one has been there, um, and I actually thrive on it. I love it. I appreciate it. I'd much rather have that than sugar-coated. But what they also did, to answer your question, I had nine different partners my first 18 months. And so play-by-play guys are very unique in this sport. Ian Dark is so different than John Champion. They're both so good. Adrian Healy is unique. They're all unique. Then you throw in, I did Glenn Davis, J.P. Delacamer, who I did my first entire year with. What an internship that was for me, (laughs) not only in broadcasting but in life. Uh, I think I've done, we were talking about this, I think it's 11 different partners. Rob Stone's in there. So I just, I took it as an internship. I took it as me being at... You know, uh, Ernst and Young and being whatever it is, no different than any other person in their profession. And I said, if I'm going to do this, ESPN's given me a wealth of people that are, have done this for a living, but also done it the right way. That's how I've learned, and I think that's how I've evolved. You played most of your career for Stevie Nichol. Yes. And I didn't Paul, understand 90% what you said, <laughs> but that's fine. And for Paul Mariner, what's it like? Playing as a player, as the star player, you and Clinton and Stevie yeah. Ralston, under those two guys, and then transitioning to working uh, in broadcasting with those two guys. Well, it's I, I can now working with them, I can actually say certain things that I couldn't say when they was working for them. So, <laughs> right, right. Um, that's fun. You know, Stevie and Paul, um, you know, they, they're more than my ex-coaches. That they're friends. Uh, they were mentors for me. They were a huge part. Any player will tell you when your name's called that week in and week out, no matter what level you're playing at, uh, you'll appreciate those guys, and Stevie and Paul were a huge part of that. Uh, working with them, I don't work with them as much, but when I do, it's always fun to throw in a little, well, yeah, just like what you guys said in 2005, and they're like, dude, we're not doing that here. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's fun. That's the background of that, but um, they're just two guys that I idolized uh, and listened to to this day. 
What about uh, so JP Telecamera you mentioned in terms of yes. uh, kind of being a, a very much a mentor. The same thing with Landon Donovan too, in many ways as far as Copa America, Copa America Centenario, is that JP and, and Landon, it just seemed to be a perfect partnership. And Landon's talked a lot about kind of how JP helped him and yeah. mentored him. What, what things specifically does JP, as he helped you with in terms of those early days as well, far as bringing he, you in? Chris, it's a good question because you would probably think he would tell me this is what you say in replays, this is what... It had nothing to do with that. What he did is, you know when you... And I'm sure this is like this in broadcasting schools or whatnot, but you go through the protocol of what to do, how to do it, when to do it. And I'm not just talking about when the red light's on. I'm also talking about when you sit with coaches, when you talk to GMs in, in front office, when you do this. JP did all of that. Uh-huh. Now, the difference is Landon did it with JP in a sprint type of thing, right? Right, right. I did it for th- almost 30 weeks uh-huh. and doing week in and week out and having those conversations with JP. I still talk to JP, you know, every couple of weeks right. still to this day. Um, he's the godfather. He's yeah. done it. He's also an American broadcaster that did other sports that has transitioned into soccer and made that his sport. But a lot of it, Chris, was about protocols on cameras, just all the little things. Quite honestly, I could probably get 10 to 12 credits in school for what he taught me that <laughs> right, first year of right, like right, right. just broadcasting one-on-one stuff that yeah. no one would ever tell you yeah. that you learn on the fly. I just... I am more than grateful for that year I had with JP more than anything else because it really gave me the, I I would say, the background to then step into the ring and do games with John Champion, Ian Dark, Adrian Healy, Derek Ray. Now, Euro 2016, as far as the the analysis you gave as a pundit there in France, to me, you you were the star of the show in terms of, like, really thought-provoking analysis that made made the viewer... Am I being punked right now? You guys are so complimentary. (laughs) This is weird. I'm like, someone's going to come out and go, psych! You're looking for a draw. (laughs) But but, but working with, like, Frank LeBeouf, uh, Roberto Martinez, Craig Burley was there, too. Does that raise your game? I mean, does that that make you try to to be more competitive? Chris, it has to. It has to, because I'm the American sitting at the table. Yeah. Right, and so this has been a challenge from day one that I took on. Was not scared to, scared to have Jed Drake, who was a massive part of our 2014 World Cup coverage, uh, looked me in the face and basically said, "You know, I don't think you're good enough." And this was right at the beginning of 2002. And I said, "Give me six months. At the end of six months, you can write up my contract." And if you don't think I'm good enough. So it's it's been a challenge from day one. When you sit with guys like Roberto Martinez and Frank LaBeouf and Michael Bollock and Ruud Van Isworth, go up and down like Craig Burley of where these guys played, no matter what, the viewer is going to look at it and look at that little pedigree of the four or five bullet points and then look at me and go, well, he doesn't know. So I better be prepared and I better be interesting where I will say stuff that maybe an Englishman may not say because sure. he played for Tottenham. Yeah. Or, you know, I remember last year it, it was for the Euros when I brought up the Tottenham end of the season thing, and that was something where, you know, an Englishman at the desk, you know, they're not going to say that. Yeah. But I can. Right. And I'm not saying it with out of spite. Sure. I'm saying it because all of us, and I include you guys, all of us are yeah. sitting there. That's what we're thinking. Right. Exactly. So, uh, you know, and if Tottenham ever had a problem, they would reach out. But Tottenham, as long as you say it the right way uh-huh. and you're not so condescending, right. no one's really going to get that, mad. And that goes back to the other question you asked about coaches and players. As long as you are not 
condescending and you talk down about your analysis or whatever, then they then it's more of a discussion. It's not a disagreement. That Tottenham point in particular is, is illustrative because I had had that conversation with someone on the phone the previous night yeah. after England had, had bombed out against Iceland or, or I can't remember which game. Maybe it was in the group stage. It was and in the group stage. Right. There are four or five yes. Tottenham players in that England team. No one makes that point on air other than you. And the person I was talking to said, my goodness, Twelman, you told me Twelman was good. He's really good. Well, in fairness, though, I, I think it comes also from sitting and having discussions every day. Like, us three are sitting here and you guys are talking about broadcasting and stuff. You do this on those kinds of tournaments every single day. Yeah. The one thing I've learned, and I still learn, is if you don't love it, it's pointless to do what, traveling 230 days a year? Right. What am I doing now? Yeah. You guys, it's stupid for you two to sit here if you didn't love what you did, right? Right. And that's the one thing I think coaches, players, they know I love it. They know my passion's there. I'm going to be wrong, but so what? They know my passion's there. So that's where the discussions of hearing about Tottenham sitting with McManaman and maybe maybe Bob Lee's not there. So I'll say, Macca, what do you think about that? Or Roberto. And they'll give me a different, and I won't steal it, but when you sit at the desk, then you're saying, you know what? We could go a different way with this, and then I'll throw it to Bob Lee or Mike and say, ask them this. they got a good answer. How difficult is it to transition from calling games with Adrian and John and Ian and, the, and JP, these guys that are soccer pros, to going on SportsCenter, to going on the other ESPN programs, talking to someone who's a host who's very— This is the billion-dollar question, Paul. Yeah. And, and quite honestly, I think soccer fans and the soccer group, we all need to calm down. And the reason why I say this is we are so, God, what's the word, inclusive? So if someone screws up a name, and, it, and then you ask that anchor or news reporter, why'd you screw it up? And then you do a little background check. They had never seen soccer. Right. Now, I think that excuse has died down in 2017. Yeah. Because we can see the game, we can see any game in the world, and it takes us five seconds on Google to figure out how to say someone's name. So that's, I, I, I resonate with that part, but we still have a job of growing the game. They also still have a job of treating the game the right way. And what they don't realize is that baseball is sweating in their shoes right now because they, soccer's right up their throat. And when I say soccer, everyone thinks MLS. I'm not talking about just MLS. I'm talking the global game. Look at what we're doing in the ICC in Miami. Right. No one get they don't get it. Um, but to answer your question, it's not difficult at all because I take that as a challenge and a fun one. And I'm actually an all-sports guy. I played baseball. Probably should have played baseball, right? So I can I can talk in their language to help them better understand it and not talk down to them because so I'd rather have them. Messes up Thierry Henry's name. He signs with Red Bulls and they call him Henry. You, yeah, you don't get offended. Nope, I don't. Now Thierry Henry's a bad example because they should. They, they should get Terry on ring. Right. They did that. Yeah, they did. They did. What about that? So you look at yourself. You know, someone who's worked really hard, has, has excelled in, in, your, in your position. You also look at Kyle Martino, yeah. same type of situation. Yeah. You look at Landon Donovan, too. He's come a long way, yeah. and he's, he's uh, kind of one of the rising stars. Yeah. Who do you look at? I at, think Stuart Holden would be, you know, he should. Stuart Holden is good. Well, I'm just saying he's yeah. working his rear end. He's good at it. Right. They're all good at it. Do you think there's other opportunities? Do you see any other individuals kind of rising up that could be the Chris, next, that's, the next that's, stars? We talk about that. If you would ask my boss right now, Amy Rosenfeld, Chris Alexopoulos, in 2007, they wrote a list of 10 MLS players. Uh-huh. I wasn't in the top 400. <laughs> right, right, they right. wanted, so sure. I, I think this, 
you don't know. Yeah. I really don't think you know. Right. I just don't. Um, I knew Kyle would. I, I, I was Kyle's host at University of Maryland when he was thinking about going to Maryland. He went to Virginia after eating all my mom's chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> right. I, re, I remember um, 2010 World Cup. I was offered to do something locally in Boston. First person I reached out to was Kyle because I needed Kyle's background. Um, I needed his perspective. What do you do? I wanted nothing to do with media. So, Chris, to answer your question, I don't think anyone knows because right. if you asked Amy Rosenfeld and Chris Alexopoulos, they would tell you there's no chance in 2007 that I was even on the radar. Yeah. So, I, and yet others were, yeah. and they never panned out, if that makes right. any sense. What was your big break, though? I mean, what, what changed uh, for them to recognize okay, Taylor's gonna actually, actually could be the guy? I think, I think once they realized I really wasn't Bull Durham, when I played, I was Bull Durham because I never wanted to get in trouble. Right. So I said every cliche, I said everything, so no one got in trouble. Right. As there was, I think I used the line, I don't know what I'm having for dinner, four million times. And everyone <laughs> had to use it. And finally, people thought it was a bad interview. Right. But I was doing it to protect, one, my team, sure. but more importantly, myself. Because I knew if you got me right. unleashed, I was going to say something that either pissed my team off yeah. or pissed off the sure. opposition. Um, I think what changed was they gave me two games and I was addicted. Uh-huh. It was a challenge. I loved the challenge. Um, I'll, I'll give you some since we've talked a lot about positive stuff. The one thing I cannot stand about broadcasting is I don't win. And, and, and you guys didn't really know me as a player. That was the only thing that mattered to me was winning, yeah, yeah. which is why I finished second place in every other competition. But um, I, that's the hardest thing about broadcasting. If you leave that game, you don't win. Now... When the U.S. wins and you're doing a U.S. game, because you're an ex-U.S. international, people think you won. But the reality is, if you're doing U.S.-Jamaica Gold Cup Final, there are Jamaicans watching the broadcast. Right. right. Especially down here. Of course they are. Right. right so, so when you do that, like that's it. people think you won. But the reality is, I, I'm done with those games going, God, was I fair to Jamaica? Was I honest about the United States? Yeah. All those things. Those are, those are actually harder games to do than just doing Orlando-Atlanta. So are you more open to kind of feedback, whether it's from fans or critics or yeah. people, as far as just trying to figure out always if, have, if, if always you can have. win or not? Yes, but, but Chris, you've got to also remember, fan comes from the word fanatic. Right. And I remember no matter what, I remember Joe Buck, who's a family friend, said something in an article. And I'll never forget it to the day I die, because he's been heavily criticized. And the guy's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> um, I say that. You know, with a lot of respect, he's amazing. He said, no matter what, at the end of the game, 60% of the viewership hates you because someone's losing. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, right. no matter what, yeah. and, and a great, great example of this is I had three Man City fans mm-hmm. Wednesday night complaining about what I was saying about John Stones. Now, everything I said about John Stones, defending crosses, dealing with balls and wide areas, is 100% true. This, that, and, and, and everybody's been saying it, too. <laughs> 100%. But because right. I don't have the accent, I go on Twitter, so you have to have perspective when you li- listen to fans. Yeah. But when I look at a fan say something, and you click on their profile, and then you read some of their tweets, you're like, you know what? He's just being honest. Same right. way I am. Yeah. Of course I listen. But a lot of times now it's at a point where you're like, it's just fans being fans. And quite honestly, that's what makes this sport great. You, you mentioned Joe Buck. How much does St. Louis shape your perspective? I mean, we think of you as a St. Louis guy. Yeah. I mean, it, St. Louis still is where my family is. Brother, sister, mom, and dad. So it's what I am. However, I've lived in Boston now 
longer in my life than I have mm. in St. Louis. Because my dad played a lot, so I didn't move back to St. Yeah, Louis. Yeah, you were in Minnesota for a while, right? Minnesota yeah. and Chicago. So, um, but St. You know, I'm a Cardinals fan. I'm a Blues fan. Uh, but Boston is now in my blood as much, which makes an odd combination. Yeah. St. Louis is friendly. Everybody loves everything, no matter if you hit 180 or 480. Boston <laughs> is the exact opposite, which I think Boston's probably shaped by media career more than St. Louis. They booed Jim Rice in Boston. Yeah, they used to boo Kevin McHale in Boston. The, uh, that kind of town. I got booed, by the way. Uh, the which question, I loved it. The last question I have is, uh, MLS. Is there any way that MLS can benefit from ICC? I mean, ICC this summer so far has been more competitive. The attendances have been fantastic. Yep. Uh, the level of competition, the stars. Is there any way that MLS can, can take something away from this and, and, and uh, I don't know. Benefit. I don't know. It's a good, it's, if you would have asked me, Chris, four years ago when I was doing some of these friendlies, I would have told you, you know what, the trend's going down, right? Yeah. And, and in large part, it's because of the success of the sport. I think the fans are more educated. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I think us three, if we sat right now with a bunch of soccer fans, and we can't BS them anymore. Right. Because they'll be like, no, actually, that's not true. He played here on loan, and you're like, so you can't do that anymore, where four years ago you could get away with it. Yeah. Um, I think the ICC is more competitive because I think there's just more pressure. Right. I think the way that, that the fact that Man City has to spend 150 million pounds for fullbacks and a goalkeeper tells you where the pressure is in the world and particularly England. Um, I don't know, Chris. I don't know because there's part of me that looks at MLS and says right during this time, LA Seattle means something. Yeah. Now, do I think MLS could progress where? These dog days of the summer, the games mean a little bit more, yes. And I think in large part, you got to cut down the playoffs. Right. Right? So then yeah. the games actually start meaning something a little bit sooner as right. opposed to August 1st, which you guys hear me say it every time I broadcast, that's when it matters. Yeah. Right. You look at Seattle, you go through the years. August 1st, that's when you turn it around. But from the ICC, I don't know. I just think it's, listen, Real Madrid and Barcelona can play anywhere in the world, yeah. and they're going to get 90,000 people. Absolutely. That's the two, those are the two brands that... I don't know. I don't know. It's a really good question. I'm not sure. I, what has stand out, actually, and let me finish this, is every, I, you guys do this very well because it's a global thing, but often in our country, we still think England is the league. Yeah. Right? right? right. And those are the brands. Right. They are until you really see Real Madrid and Barcelona take on Man City, and there's not a single City fan. I'm telling you, it was one for every thousand. Wow. It was insane in L.A. And even Adrian looked at me and he's like, this is such a good example of what the global scale is. Right. It's these two, and I, I'm sorry, but then it is United, City, Chelsea, Bayern Munich. Everybody's chasing these two. Yeah. And I think that that's something we've learned the last few years in this country because we put the English League on a pedestal, but there's so many more fans. Of well, they do it better than anyone. Right, right, right. On drama. And, and that's actually, you know what? You want MLS could learn something about the rest of the world, and it's during the ICC when you see this. You get you have to be part of the rumor mill, right? Yeah. That that can of worms, yeah, has to be open. Yeah. And that was one of the things you said after the Euros. I think you said before the Euros, you were hearing this in the MLS stories. Yeah. You came back after Euros 2016. There's no no new stories. Nothing yeah. to change. There was nothing new to talk about. And that's so much a big part of the Premier League as far as the Aww. drama soap opera. Why are you in it? Right. right. Why are we all in it? Because yeah. you're on Twitter. You're reading it. And exactly. listen, 99% of them are fake. Yeah. 
But MLS is, I think, starting to learn that. If you look at the last, I'd say, 10 days, all of a sudden the oh. Jonathan Dos Santos and the Dom Dwyers and the Bob Bradleys and the Ziggy Schmitz, they're starting to get right. that. Yeah. Yeah. But, Chris, that's what I would, to, answer, to now come full circle, during the ICC, 90% of what I'm going to talk about on SportsCenter Day is still Mbappe, still rumors. Right. Yeah. What does Gareth Bale do? MLS has to figure out a way to get into that, even if it's a smaller scale. Right. But we should be, you, us three should be talking about I don't know. Does, does Seattle trade Clint Dempsey with six months left on his deal? Yeah. yeah. And it's okay. Yeah. Like, it's, so it's sometimes it's okay at MLS, they're like, oh, my God, you're talking about it. It's like, no, 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 this is what you do. It's, it's what the rest of the world Kyrie does. Irving and the Cleveland Cavs have been starting on SportsCenter for 10 days. That's how you create buzz. I, I see, and I, I, was, I have two more questions for you, and one was right on that line, so good segue. Siggy uh, comes in to L.A. Uh, comes back to L.A., I should yeah. say. Uh, to me, that's a watershed moment because Anolfo gets six, six months. If uh, that. If yep. that. With injuries, with a team that lost Robbie Keane, with a team that lost uh, Landon Donovan's yep. return, lost a bunch of players. Steven Gerrard, Jeff Steven Lorenowitz, Gerrard, Mike McGee. Lorenowitz, who goes to Atlanta, right? Yep. Loses Mike McGee. Uh, and, uh, and then doesn't get Jermaine Jones fully fit. Yep. Doesn't have a lot of guys... Um, Fully fit. But anyway, the point being, is MLS changing, or is it the Galaxy, because the Galaxy have established themselves as a brand, that they're only going to give a coach four months? Well, it's also the Galaxy and LAFC coming in the following year. But... So is the give, pressure higher on the Galaxy this year because the No LAFC's doubt about it. In. And anyone that tells you otherwise is completely... F- and were they concerned that uh, the uh, LAFC was going to hire Siggy? Because I, I thought he would be their coach. I was surprised. Well, John Thorrington and, and Ziggy Schmidt have great history. We played together for Ziggy uh, on the Under-20 World Cup in 1999. So, yeah, there's history there. Uh, Bob Bradley was the front runner the okay. whole time. Um, but to your point, listen, I'm going to give Chris Klein and LA Galaxy some credit. I still think they make the move, whether LAFC's coming in. But I do think that is the cherry on the top, the whipped cream on top because LAFC's coming in, they're chasing Zlatan, they're both chasing Zlatan yeah. How do you, so that pressure builds but LA's LA Galaxy, they need to make the playoffs and everyone's saying Kurt Arnolfo didn't get a fair enough shot, in fairness you could also argue he gave a ton of time to the LAG two players that he knows well, better well, than anyone, right. anyone else and didn't maximize that, but injuries were a big part of it, but listen that's uh, coaches are hired to be fired it's that saying. There's no coach that's been there forever. There's Sir Alex Ferguson. Doesn't happen, right? So, for us and our job, I think we need more accountability in that area. And I'm okay. I, I'm okay with the move. Last thing, I have to ask you about this head injuries. Is FIFA doing enough? Is no. UEFA doing enough? U.S. Soccer doing enough? U.S. Soccer is moving the needle. You'll see it uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, that's all I'll give you on that, but we are doing stuff there. But U.S. soccer is pushing, pushing certain things with the FIFA medical board. But where everything is a real black and white issue, when it comes to FIFA, it becomes very, very gray. And the fact that head injuries is in that discussion bothers me more than anything. Because they know the amount of stuff, questions, answers, inquiries behind, off the record, behind closed doors that I get from people in Europe, and everyone listening to this right now, if you think this is no one in England's listening, no one in Germany's listening, you have no idea. It really is the elephant in the room. No one wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to address it head on, no pun intended. And it's really an easy, it's an easy switch to start the process of learning how we change the game. If you have 
not if you have independent medical professionals on the side. Right. Chelsea's the best example because I'm forgetting her name and drawing a blank, but yeah. her What's dilemma with Jose Mourinho. Eva of, Canera, yes, yeah. Eva, thank you. That's ridiculous. A coach should have 0.0 say on any medical thing. But if it's independent, that also helps Eva. Right. And that's what people don't understand. Yeah. Because what people don't get is coaches look at the training staff as they're below them. No, no, I dictate. Look at how Bill Belichick's done the Patriots guys. He answers the medical questions. What are we doing? Right. Like it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't make any sense to me. Has any have uh, the authorities, uh, regulatory authorities in Europe, have they talked to you? Yeah, they're they're asking questions. They're That's talking. Good. To, the thing is, though, I, I, this isn't about me. I would love for U.S. Soccer to drive the conversation because twenty years, thirty years, forty years down the road, I want U.S. Soccer to deserve the credit for changing and being proactive. No heading under the age of ten. Let's have a substitution rule where you can sub the player. Yeah. Let's do that right. We all know we could do that. Everyone that tells us we can't do it, we know we could do that. That's why I still... Uh, I don't when understand MLS experimented that. with the fourth sub for the goalkeeper, I still supported that. I still think that's a good idea. Yep. I think U.S. soccer is on the verge of doing that in the development academy, which is more important to me because I'm more worried about the kids because if yeah. I educate the kids at 8, 9, 10, 11, then when they're pros, I've already... I don't need, if I'm educating the pros, I'm, I'm, I'm late. That's why my foundation and my message is more for the parents and kids because I'm not really going to tell a 22, 25-year-old man or woman what to do. They can do that. They're they're over 18. That's that's not my job. So, John, I wanted to ask you, first of all, um, who is John Champion? Because we we, we hear your voice so often, especially Friday night's championship matches, oftentimes uh, two or three uh, Premier League games a weekend, probably one of the hardest-working uh, commentators in the business, but who is John Champion? So, what type of thing? What are you like in terms of your personal life? What is what, what, what's outside football and, and some of the hobbies or things that you enjoy uh, doing? Well, given my schedule, sometimes there isn't as much outside football as I might wish. But I, I've got a big family. I've got I'm married with four children, who are uh, rapidly growing up. So I've got a daughter who's 22, who um, who works in the cosmetics industry and marketing in London for Elizabeth Arden. She's just graduated from university. I've got a, a 19-year-old son who is at St. Andrews University uh, and is currently in Cambodia getting some work experience, which is interesting. I've seen some of the pictures and I, I don't envy that, um, that accommodation. Uh, I've got another boy of 17 who's still at school and then a, a, a young one who's not so young of 14 who's, who's also evidently still at school. So that, that's my sort of family setup, and we live in a, a lovely area of, of England called the Cotswolds. Yeah. Uh, Gloucestershire. It's about 90 miles northwest of London, very rural. And I live in a tiny village of 130 people. Um, I live in a house that is 350 years old. Uh, I recently had its history researched, just out of interest, and we found that the, the, uh, the first owner of the land was Queen Elizabeth I, and that Thomas Jefferson's best friend used to live in our house. So some interesting <laughs> oh. things come up. So, but this lovely village, um, in the middle of rolling countryside, we've got as facilities a village hall, an ancient chapel and a very good pub, which is at the bottom of our drive. So it's a, it's a great place to live. And it's also, on a practical level, very easy to get around the country being in the, in the middle of England rather than down in the south or up in the north. Okay. And uh, so in an interview a few years ago, actually about four years ago, you said that um, you were thinking back to a day, uh, January 7th, 1978, which was uh, York City to yes. Newport County Mill. And he said, I love the match day experience. It stays with me, even if I'm watching football on the other side of the world. Mm. It still traces me back to that day. Well, we are on the other side of the world. We are uh, <laughs> not too far from Miami. We're yes. getting ready for the Classico this weekend. 
what is it about that match that you still remember that still kind of traces you back to to that, that day? I think it was the fact that I'd had to wait so long to go and watch my first professional football match in part. So I was 12 at the time. And my father was a school teacher in a boarding school, which was about a quarter of a mile from the York City Stadium. And because he was a housemaster, we lived in a house in the school. And I suffered the agony for years of being able to hear the crowd ooing and ahhing on a Saturday afternoon. And they would never take me to go and, go and see it. My father had to work on a Saturday. He was never free. And eventually one of his colleagues one day, as I was moaning on a Saturday lunchtime, why can't I go to the football, Dad? Come on, Dad, you've got to let me go. He said, oh, look, I'll take you. Mm-hmm. So at an hour's notice, we went to see this game between York City and Newport County. And I remember walking into the ground and just seeing the enthusiasm and the engagement of the people, all wearing scarves. It was midwinter. They were huddled up. They were wearing the same club colours. And then we got into the ground, and as we walked past the back of the main stand, you could smell first the hot dogs, mm-hmm. and then you could smell the liniment as well that the players were rubbing on their muscles on a, on a cold winter's day. And then we went and stood behind the ground, and the crowd, I was in the middle of the crowd, and it was swaying one way and then the other. And I was just completely wrapped up by the spectacle and the engagement of the people that were there. And I think partly because I'd been denied it for so long, I was just hooked. Yeah. So when did you know you wanted to be a, a, become a football commentator? I didn't. I didn't. I fell into it. Um, I mean, briefly, my story is I went to school, um, wasn't at all academic. I uh, got some dreadful A-levels, which is sort of the, the results at the end of high school, that would get me nowhere near a university place in, in this day and age. Uh, and went, uh, I thought I needed some time to decide what to do. And I wanted to go travelling as well. So I took a job at the British Lending Library uh, up in Yorkshire, which was a great big warehouse. And my job was to go uh, and receive a, a request, and there were hundreds a day from academics around the world wanting a, an article from a particular scientific or medical journal, I had to photocopy it and send it off to them uh, from this vast store. I mean, the British Lending Library is one of the biggest of its type in the world. So I did that for about six months uh, with the intention of earning enough money to go travelling after that. And after about four months, I played in a cricket match one day and I got a few runs. This was in my home city of York. And I retired to the bar afterwards, quite happy with the, the day's events. And after about three pints of Yorkshire Bitter, the phone rang in the clubhouse and it was the local radio station wanted to interview me about the day's proceedings. By this stage, I was quite happy to talk for as long as anyone wanted. <laughs> so I did and waxed lyrical and thought no more about it, returned to the clubhouse and had a very good night. And about two weeks later, the phone rang at home and it was the sports editor of the local radio station, a newly set up BBC station saying, look, we're, we're trying to set up a sports department. We need someone to report on a bit of football and rugby. And this may sound very strange to you, but we really like the sound of your voice and you sounded quite fluent. Do you fancy giving it a go? So I thought, well, why not? This sounds like a, a great opportunity just to have some fun. So I just passed my driving test, which meant I was able to actually get to the games, which was a plus. I didn't know what I was doing, but I got sent off with a tape recorder to do the aftermatch interviews and, uh, and did a, a couple of things. And then about six weeks later, they rang again, the same sports editor, to say, you know, we think you've got something here. And if you're interested in making something more, possibly a career out of this, then we would support you in that. I thought, well, that really is something to think about. Um, So uh, I took about 30 seconds to think about it and thought, yeah, let's let's give it a go. But he went on to say, look, the BBC only really recruits graduates. Mm -hmm. You need to go away. Just have the experience of three years away, mature a bit get yourself some sort of academic qualification as a, as a backup, and we'll give you work at weekends. And as long as you train on, we'll sort you out at the, at the end of the process. So I somehow managed to get on a forerunner of a media degree course 
uh, in Leeds, another of the big cities in the, the north of England. I think its full title was Communication with Cultural Studies and Public Media. It's got a bit snappier since then. Uh, so I went and did this for three years. It was a Catholic teacher training college that I ended up at, so I soon knew the, the, the words to every single Pogue song. So this was completely new as an environment to me. And sure enough, the BBC were as good as their word, and every weekend I would have at least one football match to go and cover. And then gradually it got more and more, and I found myself working in midweek as well, and the money supplemented my uh, university grant income, so it, it smoothed my path through, through that time of my life. And then six weeks before my final exams at, at, at college, there was a phone call from the personnel department of the BBC in London to say that a job was coming up for a sports reporter at... BBC Radio Leeds and was I interested because they'd already put me in for an interview and they said these are the questions we we're going to ask you and these are the answers we'd quite like to hear so I thought I've got a chance here <laughs> and he, he ended up by saying three o'clock Friday broadcasting house don't forget to wear a tie so I went in and, and parroted these answers and surprise surprise got the job and they kept it open while I finished my finals and the week after my university time ended or college time um, I started work at the BBC in Leeds, did that for 18 months, got a job offer from Radio 2 Sport, the national sports station in London, which was a huge thrill, at the end of 1989, and went down there, and on my first day I walked into an office that contained really the great and the good of British sports broadcasting. Uh, Peter Jones, the most mellifluous and wonderful Welsh um, commentator who'd done Hillsborough and Heisel and had been the voice of my childhood, listening on a transistor radio to hissy uh, broadcasts of matches in far-flung European destinations as Liverpool carried all before them. Brian Butler with his marvellous Somerset tones, the, yeah. the football correspondent. Christopher Martin Jenkins did the cricket. Ian Robertson did the rugby. Peter Bromley, a uh, very acerbic individual, but a wonderful broadcaster, was the, the racing man. And I found myself as the sort of office junior in the, in the corner. But things I was very lucky. Things fell into place, and within three months, I was asked to present uh, Sport on Two, which is the, the flagship Saturday afternoon programme, which leads into Sports Report with the famous music at five o'clock. Uh, and it was the day of the, the boat race, and I remember that day for two reasons, really. One, it was a breakthrough moment in my career, being given an iconic programme to do, and I was, I was 24 years of age at the time, so it came very early for me. And the second one, and the sadder one, um, was that Peter Jones was the commentator on the boat race mm. and he had covered everything he'd just reached the age of 60 and had retired from the staff of the BBC and I can't stress to you how uh, influential a figure he was in radio broadcasting he would do not just sporting events but royal occasions occasions of state as well um, and there was a lot of the actor about him um, he had a wonderful sense of drama and of presentation and how to convey a moment um, and he did the, the boat race, and I handed over to him, and I'd seen him in the morning, and as usual, he was carrying a great big pile of books under his arm. He was a very well-read man, and he said, good luck, young man, I'll talk to you later. And um, he started to do the commentary, and about five minutes in, his voice started to slur, and eventually uh, it just reduced to nothing. And Dan Topolsky, who was a famous rowing coach, took over from him, and we were thinking, well, what, what's going on here? And sadly, uh, what rapidly became clear was that he'd suffered a huge heart attack in the middle of this and he was on a launch in the middle of the River Thames covering the boat race they couldn't get him to shore very quickly and, um, and sadly he didn't make it and so uh, I then had to do my first ever sports report at five o'clock to say we didn't know he died at that stage but that you know he was seriously ill in the hospital and this was a 
an event of national resonance. The phone was ringing off the hook in the office outside the, the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was in hospital for the weekend. And then on Monday, I had to present the, the what they called the 645 Sports Desk on Radio 2. It came off the back of the John Dunn show, for people that remember those days, on, on Radio 2. And that was a quarter of an hour that summed up the day's sport. Right. And um, it was announced about two hours before we went on air that he had passed away. And his closest friend was Cliff Morgan, the Welsh rugby international, uh, former head of sport at the BBC. And it was decided that we would clear the decks to pay respect to Peter in this 6.45 bulletin, which was listened to by millions of people. And Cliff sat opposite me in the studio and I said, good evening, welcome to Radio 2 on a very different and sad day. It's 6.45 and rather than give you today's sports news, we need to reflect on the very sad passing of our colleague Peter Jones. And here to do so, his lifelong friend and colleague, Cliff Morgan, and I handed to Cliff, and he sat opposite me, and it was one of the most magnificent pieces of broadcasting and oratory I've ever heard. He sat there without a piece of paper, with tears running down his face, and in the way that only a man of Wales could, mm-hmm. pay tribute to Peter for 14 and a half minutes, giving me 15, 20 seconds to sign off uh-huh. at the end. And that stays with me, because I don't know how he did it, but the fact that he did do it was just jaw-dropping and magnificent. Yeah. Do you think, uh, before I hand it on to Martek, do you think in some ways that in terms of um, radio's been so influential for so many commentators, yes. uh, even hospital radio, mm. for a lot of, a lot of uh, even the Martin Tyler's, the world, yes. and it's been such such a, uh, a big difference maker for, for the UK uh, British commentators, and one of the reasons why people like yourself and others are uh, some of the best in the world. In terms of today's day and age where you have... You know, Talk sports and, and uh, yes, hmm. definitely a Radio Five is still uh, involved quite a bit with yes. uh, uh, radio broadcasts. But it doesn't seem to be. Do you think it has has kind of is going to have an impact on the future generations of UK commentators? Perhaps? I think it will because it's an obvious recruiting ground. Right. Um, I think the danger in all of this is that there is really no earthly reason why a very good radio commentator should become a very good television commentator because they are almost entirely different jobs. So on the radio you're an artist with a blank canvas in front of you and you can paint pictures Mm -hmm. and it's a terrific luxury to have. It also demands great skill if you listen to people like John Murray on BBC Radio. Tremendous at, at, at doing that. So what then tends to happen and it happened in my case is that you get offered a chance because you're considered a good radio commentator on the television and Yes, it means that you're at home on the air and you're not overly nervous and you're not going to keel over through sheer excitement. But at the same time, the job is utterly different because you are just there to caption the picture that's provided for you. Your words, however good, however well thought out, can never trump the work of 26 television cameras around the ground. And you're silly to try and take that on. So all you can really do is become a guide. It's a bit like being a, a good referee where you're not really noticed for the majority of the time. Right. Um, and this was brought home to me because when I was given my Match of the Day chance, they sent me with John Motson to Selhurst Park to a game that he was covering for Match of the Day. And they said, look, it's going to take you 10 years to become a proper television commentator and probably 20 before you're really at the level where you can be a, a number one mm-hmm. commentator. And I sat next to him and he barely spoke during the game. He sat there and it was as if, this was obviously the highlights, but the, the point remains... Uh, he would sit there with his microphone on his lap on top of his notes for what seemed like minutes on end. It probably wasn't that long. Right. And then when I listened to his broadcast that evening on, on the BBC, it was, it was seamless because it had all been knitted together. Uh-huh. But I think... Uh, the, the, so the ra- what I'm saying is that the radio 
vis-a-vis um, preparation for TV thing is, is very interesting because, yes, of course it's good preparation, but it's by no means the whole story. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there is a bit of a blurring of the lines now if you listen on TV. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of people that talk an awful lot, and maybe that's the way forward, but mm-hmm. it's not the way I was taught to do it. Sure. You're extremely good at scene setting before matches as you enter a match, uh, painting a picture for the audience as to the context of the match and uh, what is going to unfold in, in front of you on your television screen. Does that, uh, do you owe that to your radio background? Yes, yeah, without question. Because that, that's the one bit of TV where you are, in a sense, painting a verbal picture. Um, and if you're working in tandem with a good director and you can ask him for su- uh, some pictures to support what you're intending to say, then I think it works quite quite effectively. But I, I think one thing that is common of both radio and TV is that when a broadcast starts, you've got 30 seconds to capture your audience, to make them aware that this is actually worth staying up for, getting up for, whatever it may be, that this demands their attention for the next 90 minutes to two hours. What's your sense on the commentary style that you have to employ uh, for the international audience to do a lot of games, uh, both football league and Premier League for the international audience, and then uh, a different uh, type of broadcast potentially for a very British audience? I suppose it's probably slightly broader brushstrokes for the international audience, which is not to say that uh, you're, you're dealing with an audience that doesn't know as much. It's just that you're, you're dealing with such a broad spectrum because you're not... If I turn up on a, a Saturday tea time, UK time, to do Tottenham against Manchester United... I'm not just broadcasting to the US, I'm, I'm broadcasting to all sorts of territories around the world, many of them very small, um, and, and you need to talk and work in a way where everybody is going to understand what's going on. So maybe you take it back a notch or two from doing a domestic commentary, but I think people now are so knowledgeable around the world that you don't have to make too many compromises. Maybe for the international audience there's a temptation to talk a little bit more. I try and resist that. Um, you know, I think if I have any sort of hallmark at all, it's probably that I talk less than, than most, just on the basis that I think if you talk all the time, people switch off mentally right. and it becomes wallpaper. Yeah. So if you have fewer words, those words you do use hopefully have a greater impact. That's my equation. Do you, do you ever get nervous, though? I mean, it's a big match this weekend. The Classic mm. probably the biggest match this year, uh, worldwide audience, but especially in the US. I mean, mm. do, you, do you ever get nervous before a match? Well, I think you're always aware that you're operating without a safety there and that mm-hmm. one slip could lead to quite a nasty injury. Right. Okay. So um, to that degree, yes, but I don't sit there shaking. It doesn't inhibit me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just aware that I can't afford to mess this up. I think that's the, the best way of putting it. Uh, years ago, I would get more nervous. Right. And, you know, still, if I was doing a cup final, there'd be a little frisson before, sure. beforehand. But I think you learn to cope with these things over the years and, and use it as a spur and use the adrenaline it provides rather than being inhibited by it. What's your week like? You, you call two, three, four games um, uh, a weekend, mm. whether it's football league, Premier League. There have been days where you've called uh, two matches in a, yes. in a day. Yes. And, um, and I may have been the one who made you aware of that. <laughs> yes, you were, Carty. <laughs> uh, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, how do you prepare during the week for, let's say, a Friday football league match and then quickly a turnaround Saturday Premier League, Sunday Premier League? It's tougher at the start of the season where you've not seen the sides. So what I'm going back to next week in the UK will be a a fair few shifts of hard labour, just getting my head around the new squads, uh, trying to see them in action, either in person or or via tape of some description. Um, I, I think there's a difference. If you were doing one game a week, which used to be my existence for, for UK domestic television, you give, it, you give that everything and you, know, you go and watch them train. 
Um, you talk to people behind the scenes. Uh, you watch endless videos to make sure you're absolutely up to speed. You just don't have that luxury if you're doing, say, two games for the World Feed in the Premier League over the weekend, sometimes three now with the Friday night matches as well, plus a football league game. And maybe I've been out in Europe doing European football for BT during the week. So you have to pare it down a little bit. Um, but you still probably spend... To do a Premier League game, you probably want a day's preparation ahead of it. It might have been three days before, but it, it, it'd be a day. So it is a question of trying to work everything in, and um, it doesn't leave a, a great deal of, of spare time. But the, the payback is that every other summer you get some time off, which has been this summer, which has been great. So I, I encounter you at my most relaxed in what feels like years. It's wonderful. I don't know how long it'll last, mind you. For, for El Clasico this weekend, so yes. would you try to, if it's a stadium you haven't been to or a stadium that's mm. been re, uh, renovated would you try to go there before the match? Yeah, I'd go and have a little look. See what, the, see what the commentary position is like as well because that has a big big bearing. So in the right. last week I've been to Santa Clara where we were a million miles away from the pitch and yeah. then we were at FedEx Field where you're quite close and quite low down. Right. I actually prefer higher because it gives you a better perspective on the game and mm -hmm. if five heads go up for a first minute corner gives you a better chance of identifying who's actually got their head to the right. ball rather than lower down where you, you can't see through the players. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd have a look at, at Hard Rock Stadium and just see exactly what it's like. But um, it'll be strange. This will be my first game in Florida since the 1994 World Cup, yeah, Orlando, yeah, I remember in, in the Citrus Bowl. That's right. So um, yeah, when, when water bottles were being thrown on the side by John Aldridge and Jack Charlton and things like that. Right. So yeah, happy so memories, but um, yeah. no, it's great to be back. Excellent. Uh, you work uh, closely with Marty, you referenced that earlier. Mm. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, his influence on your career and his influence on broadcasting in, in Britain in general. Um, he's just been there forever, which is said in the nicest possible way. I mean, he's still still active now, still works for Match of the Day, still does a really good job. Um, but he was... Because the BBC and ITV were the only places to go for live football, there were really three TV commentators for probably 25 or 30 years who, who hogged centre stage. So there was John Motson, Barry Davis, both of them at the BBC, and Brian Moore, a former BBC radio commentator who was the, the main man at ITV. So if you switched on a live TV game, and there were probably only two or three a year, maybe the FA Cup final, sometimes England-Scotland might make it, then after a while the European Cup final would be, would be shown in the, 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 the days before the Champions League. It would be one of those three doing it. I think Motty captured the imagination in particular because he was, he was and is such an enthusiast. I mean, he'll still take himself off to watch Barnet midweek or Watford or Luton or somewhere close to his home just because he, he loves it so much. It might have nothing to do with his, his working schedule, but he will, he will still go. Um, and what the BBC had in those days was the great enthusiast in John Motson and a very erudite broadcaster in Barry Davis. Polar opposites in many respects, and yet they complemented each other beautifully. Um, and either one of them could have been the main man for, for 30 years. But it was a bit like the England goalkeeping position with Ray Clements and Peter Shilton. Right. You know, either of them would have walked into just about any other team in the world, but Absolutely. they just happened to coincide. So I think for, for, from John's point of view, um, there are two parts to his career, really. The, the first one is emerging in the late 1960s on the radio, getting a move to television, doing the famous FA Cup tie, uh, at Edgar Street Hereford against Newcastle where Ronnie Radford scored a goal that's replayed every year at the start of the FA Cup and that was his big breakthrough moment and then he sailed on for 20 years and then there was a change of management at the BBC and suddenly he wasn't doing the World Cup final and he wasn't doing the FA Cup final and, and Barry was um, and then off the back of that to me, and I've never really talked to him about it in any detail, but there was almost a reinvention of 
of John Moxon and Motti became the, the moniker and um, he came back and I think people had, had missed him and he was welcomed back and he regained the World Cup final and the FA Cup finals and, and did another, what, nearly, nearly 20 years. So sheer longevity, enthusiasm, the fact he was always a welcome voice in people's living rooms. I think, you know, you are a very privileged guest in people's homes when you're a, a TV sports announcer and I think he always appreciated that. How have you found the, uh, the sophistication of American audiences? It's now been three years you've been doing games mm. here in the States. Now, we've, ha- we've heard your voice for 20 years, yes. but uh, three years you've done games specifically for the States uh, audience. Uh, is it different than uh, the UK audience, and, and how do you find the soccer knowledge? Uh, soccer knowledge is really good, really good, without question. Um, I mean, I contrast that to being here for the 94 World Cup, which was a strange event because it was as if there wasn't a World Cup on as I travelled around the country then. Yes, at the stadiums you knew it was on, but there was nothing at the railway stations, the airports, in the, the host cities. Now you get a, a real sense that football, whilst by no means the dominant sport here, is, is, is a factor. And I sat in my hotel room in Santa Clara the other day and there were four consecutive games on network TV. There was an MLS game on ESPN, two ICC games, and then Fox had the US national team off the back of that. So there were opportunities now to watch soccer at all hours of day and night, which were not there certainly in 94. I guess they probably weren't there in 2004 either. So in terms of sophistication, I really don't notice too much of a difference between the the US audience and, and that in the in the UK. I, I notice slight differences between doing MLS and doing the Premier League, um, but they're welcome differences. You know, I, I, what I love about America is the enthusiasm. Uh, at home, we sit there with our glass half empty, and <laughs> here you sit here with a glass half full. What, what has it been like uh, actually working with ESPN? I mean, you've done now World Cup games, mm-hmm. you've done, I mean, across the board, MLS games, uh, US men's national team games, El Clasico, Miami. Mm. Um, what has it been, that experience been like, just working with the team behind the scenes at ESPN? Oh, they're, they're, they're great. I mean, Amy Rosenfeld heads up the department. Chris Alexopoulos is, um, is her right-hand man who's, who's terrific. And I think there's a wider point there that actually the coverage of soccer on US TV is well served by executives like those two I just mentioned, by people like Pierre Moussa at, at NBC, by people like John T. Whitehead at, at Fox. You know, these are people that know the industry, know the sport, and know a good way forward for their organization. That might be a different way forward. You know, Fox wants to have a much more American slant on their coverage, and I understand that. But the fact you've got people who are really engaged and really want this to succeed, I think, is, is so important. So in answer to your original question about ESPN, the first thing that struck me was, was the scale, mm-hmm. the scale of the organization. So... When I called the 2014 World Cup for them, um, they tried to get me for 2010 and I'd already signed a contract with ITV to do it in the UK. So 2014 came around and it was the seventh World Cup I'd been fortunate enough to do and I had never seen anything like the scale of the operation that ESPN mounted. Most notably, um, the the venue for the host set on the beach in in Rio where, as I understand it, they pretty much bought a yacht club. They hadn't rented it, they'd just gone and bought the thing. Um, and then I walked into the first talent meeting and there was Balak and obviously Macca, Steve Manaman I'd worked with many times before and there was Santi Solari and you know, any number of, of world football figures and clearly you know, money had been no object and it was just it was fantastic to be part of, of something um, like that and off the back of that they had then offered me the opportunity to do, to do more so I, I have a contract whereby I have a certain number of appearances to do in the US each year and I look forward to those visits so I think I had six visits last year I'll have five or six this year they usually culminate in doing an MLS playoff semi-final second leg 
yeah. sometime in November. So I'm inked in for the 5th or 6th of November this year. Goodness knows where we'll be. But last year it was uh, Sporting Kansas City against LA Galaxy. Right. Skelgen Gashi scored from the neighbouring state with a, right, a I shot that... All of that. Oh, it's, it's, I, 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 I remember seeing the behind the goal, the low behind the goal angle from the, the opposite end. And that ball at altitude did things that I'd never seen a football do before. <laughs> but that was, that was a great experience. One, one of the things that we've been uh, amazed by, is, is, and actually we, we, we've enjoyed a lot, is the NBC Sports has made a, a conscious effort on uh, interviewing the, the commentators, getting the commentators' yes. viewpoints before a match and actually having the camera on the commentator. Mm. For example, I mean, I think just this last season or maybe the season before, probably the first time actually for the US uh, audience I've actually seen Peter Drury on uh-huh. camera Yes, and I've seen pictures of him but actually seeing him there talking and, and I think quite a few times that you've had pre- yeah, yeah we probably probably do 20-25 of those a season so you know more or less every week we do one from, from one of our games yeah. um, and I understand why they do it and I think it's a it's a nice idea I mean that's just a sort of bolt on to my working day because we're we're actually there purely at the behest of a company called Premier League Productions which is a wing of the Premier League yeah. who produce all the worldwide coverage and the magazine shows that you occasionally see right. see here and they have a 24 hour channel as well which goes around to broadcasters yeah. uh, around the world who are rights holders of the Premier League and then in addition to doing the commentary which NBC on occasion take when Arlo or, or whoever isn't isn't there for them yeah. um we also do pre-match stand-up. Sometimes we do three or four before a game. So okay. typically it would be uh, be in sports yeah. uh, for the Middle East and North Africa, NBC for the US. Quite often we do Rogers mm-hmm. for Canada. Okay. Sometimes we do Supersport for Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, occasionally the Australian rights holder might want something. But strangely, the Slovakian rights holder got very interested <laughs> in having stand-ups. Um, uh, towards the end of the season, so that that's yeah. that's how that but, happens. But, yeah, those stand-ups have been great for us, at least for a, a lot of our viewers, because before that we really hadn't seen John Champion say like on television unless we happened to catch an interview here or there. Right. Yes. So it yeah. kind of adds. Uh, I guess it, it, we can see the, the, the face behind the, face the voice. I guess it also it, it, it allows NBC to claim a degree of ownership over the commentary as well. Even if right. it is a world feed commentary, they can make it feel like it's theirs because they, they've seen the commentators with NBC mic flags before before yeah. the game. Absolutely. You, uh, the Premier League is very much a sky creation, but you have the unique uh, uh, history of having worked for Satanta when they got the rights and became the first uh, channel in the UK to show matches that wasn't sky. Yes. Then uh, you went to ESPN UK and now yes. BT. Mm. Uh, how has that evolution uh, played out? And also, uh, is there a difference in how you uh, approach commentary from each of those three networks? Um, so not really between Satanta and ESPN UK. Um, BT tend to use a three-man booth, so there's a there's a difference in in emphasis there. Um, Is that a general trend in commentary, the three-man booth? Uh, not really, no. No, I mean we, we are seeing a little bit more of it. I think there's a there's a, um, a desire to be different on the part of some TV sports executives, and that that's a point of difference. Uh, it helps you to get get noticed, and then you need to take a longer-term view as to whether it works better than what went before and. People will have differing opinions on that, I, I suppose. But no, Satanta was was interesting. It was a watershed moment in the TV sports broadcasting landscape because it came at a time when it was felt that Sky were perhaps getting a little bit too dominant, and so legislation was put in place, uh, which meant that they couldn't be the only domestic rights holders. And what Satanta did was, I think there were six packages of rights up for offer, and everyone expected that Sky would get five and a another organisation would get one and in fact Satanta managed to find the money through venture capitalists to get two which came as quite a quite a shock to Sky but it still didn't 
really alter the balance of things. And I think what we've learned over the last 10 years of pretenders to Sky's crown coming in is that the only thing that defines the success of a sports TV network in the UK is Premier League rights. How much rugby or cricket, tremendous sports and great action, however much of that you've got, how much of the Football League you've got, however much, arguably, the Champions League you've got, it's having that bulk 100-plus Premier League matches, the weekly soap opera that you can cover more or less in full. That's the thing by which you stand or fall. Right. What about, what about solo commentaries? Because oftentimes the championship matches, it's, yeah. it's yes, you by yourself. Yes. I mean, does that... I guess my question would be, in some ways, it's difficult because, I mean, I'm sure you have opinions about matches and you, about what's going on on the mm. field. It's kind of that balance between trying to give the commentary but also... In a solo commentary, would you try to give a little bit more you've opinion? Got, you've got to give a little bit more opinion, but it's not particularly comfortable territory to go into because what are my qualifications to give opinion, mm-hmm. you know, compared to a Craig Burley or a Taylor Twellman or, uh, you know, uh, someone on NBC or on Sky, Gary Neville? I mean, I'm not qualified to, to do that. So sure. it's, a, it's a necessity to cross that line occasionally just to provide a relatively complete commentary. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it, you know, it reflects the fact that no one's hiding the issue that those are done on a budget, those those Football League commentaries, because there are not, compared to the Premier League, as many takers around the world to pay for them. Right. You do a lot of Champions League matches mm. uh, for VT. How, uh, and have done them for ITV in the past, mm. etc., uh, how much does this ICC help prepare you for that? Because you're seeing the same teams you're going to see in Europe. Yes. Um, in theory, I am. But the chances of getting Real Madrid... Barcelona, Manchester United first up are relatively slim. I'll probably end up with you know Ajax against someone or you know, so. Yeah, but no, of course it's useful because I know at some point during the course of the season I'm going to encounter all these sides. It's been it's been good seeing Manchester United up close a couple of times because I got them fairly early season against Everton. Um, but it's now so much easier than it ever was before to to get access to to DVDs or to video footage of of any club in the world in any league. So it's not perhaps quite the issue that it once was where the only way to find out what Real Madrid looked like was to order up a tape from Spanish television and wait for it to be sent. You know, we've, we've gone past those days, thankfully, so um, it becomes less arduous. How, how far in advance would you know in terms of uh, comment, commentary? So you mentioned the Man United-Everton match. Mm. But would you know several weeks in advance for some of the other matches? I know too? my Premier League schedule through until uh, the end of October. Okay. So what you really need to know, Christopher, is that I will be at the Liberty Stadium for Swansea against Newcastle <laughs> in early September. Excellent, good stuff. <laughs> and looking forward to it. Because, yeah. You know, I was, I was pleased that they hung on in there at the, the end of last season. And as far as those assignments, are some of them uh, geography related to, in terms of, or just more in it terms of... It tends to be a bit of a lottery. I mean, as it happens, of all the commentators, I live closer to Swansea than anyone else. So yeah. I'm always very happy to put my hand up and say, look, I'll, I'll go to go to Swansea. Um, but no, generally, it's it's just, you know, there's a slot, right, there's a name, let's yep. marry those two things up. And as far as the COCOM uh, team, so is, is it usually that you're paired up with most likely the same individual most times? Not really. No, also? no, that rotates as well. Okay. So, um, I mean, Peter and I tend to do the bulk of the, the Premier League games. Martin Tyler tends to do Monday nights when he's not got a Sky commitment. Yep. Jim Proudfoot has come in to do what are in the UK, the three o'clock kickoffs right. usually with Matt Holland yeah. and then those are aired now in the UK? they're not aired in the oh, UK okay. they're aired in Ireland so that game tends to be the game that Sky who have the rights for Ireland mm-hmm. are showing um, in the Republic of, ah, of okay. Ireland that that tends to be the, the case and then the co-coms Jim Beglin uh, does a lot Kevin Kilban has come in to do quite a few Andy Townsend right. 
does uh, does a lot, um, and he he's a big contributor to the twenty four hour Premier League channel that yep. we were talking about. In fact, he's now presenting some of their their football shows as well, which he's doing he's doing very well. Um, so, uh, and then David Prutner's come in, who's who's been making waves at Sky, although they seem to be using him more as a, a football presenter than a co commentator, which is the role that PLP have him in. Um, Matt Holland does a few. We we're, we're lucky. We're well served. I mean, it's an it's an attractive gig for those those guys because sure. it gets their name out in front of an awful lot of people. Does Premier League Productions have to clear your schedule with uh, with BT? How do they coordinate the two entities? Um, well, I've got I've, I have separate arrangements with with the two, and because uh, I mean, if BT want me to go and call a Premier League game, um, as happened last season, then they they because I have a contract with Premier League Productions, they have to. They have to. They have to talk, and sometimes they'll say yes, and I suspect sometimes they'll say no. And I, I know uh, Peter Drew was in the same position. Yeah. He he ended up calling a, a Premier League game last year for for BT. Um, but the the Premier League gig is 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 good because there's a lot of it. I mean, I think I did nearly seventy games for them wow. last season, yeah. which is yeah, yeah. basically two every round of the yeah. of the league. And it's nice because it gives you a really good handle on on what's going on mm-hmm. in the league. And if you would, you know, if you're Martin Tyler at Sky, I, I can't. Assess totally accurately his his lineup of games, but he perhaps does 40, 45 games for Sky. Obviously, he does a lot for for others. So, you know, we're doing nearly twice that. Uh, so we really do get around the, sure. the league. So, what about the International Champions Cup? What do you mm. see the, the potential of this tournament being, uh, not just for this year, but also for, for uh, future years too? Well, first thing to say is I believe this has been the best one so far. It's year five. Mm-hmm. I think it's benefited enormously from not being in the year of a major tournament. Um, because all the, the big names are here and as, as we sit here we're waiting on tenterhooks to see if Cristiano Ronaldo gets off a private jet in the next few hours um, but Ronaldo notwithstanding uh, the quality of the games has been more of an edge to them yeah. the quality of the starting lineups has been better mm-hmm. and I think it's now become an integral part of the warm-up process for the leading European sides, sides. I mean what, what's not to like about being in this climate with these facilities. I mean, Mourinho, I saw the other day, was waxing lyrical about UCLA mm-hmm. and the, the preparatory regime that's been provided for Manchester United there. So I can only see this growing from strength to strength. Uh, I, I just think that in a World Cup year, which we face next year, it's going to be more difficult to get the leading players because they are going to need a rest of some description. Um, I don't know how some of them function. People like Alexis Sanchez, who's had Copa America Centenario, then he's had a Premier League season, and then he's had other commitments, Confederations Cup, and barely gets a rest before he goes to play who knows where. It's looking like it may be Arsenal again for the time being. Um, I think we do demand too much of, of these players. You know, there is a danger that the well runs dry in terms of their energy and, mm-hmm. and enthusiasm, but I think the balance has been right at the ICC right. this time. And it, you know, hats off to Stephen Ross and Charlie Stilitano for, for what they've managed to put together here. And I, I think it's also really good. I know it's not directly related to MLS and the growth of of the domestic mm-hmm. product, but I, it just means more eyeball, eyeballs on the sport in the US, and that can right. that can only be good. And I, I noticed that MLS audiences recently. I know we the juggernaut of the NFL hasn't come along yet to sort of crush everything in its path, but yeah. you know they've been a notch up. So there are there are seeds of encouragement there, and I think that the presence of great players in the US at a time when MLS is also on can only be good. Mm-hmm. During the course of a long Premier League season, long mm. English football season, do you feel the same way as the players? You get to a certain point in the season <laughs> and yeah, you're going through the motions, or how do you keep it fresh from week to week? And does the international break help uh, recharge you? Well, it doesn't really, because we tend to get recruited then to go and do 
international matches. Right. So, it, well, in my case, I, I tend to come here, and if I don't come here, then IMG have the rights to broadcast those games around the world, and they need commentators. So there's, there's always the opportunity to do that. And you find the same thing with the FA Cup. That when the FA Cup comes round, you know, rounds three, four, and five, there's no Premier League, but there are then invitations to go and commentate on those games, either for for BT uh, or for or for the organisation that has the the worldwide rights. And it's, I think, as a as a freelance, it's when when do you say no? It, this is the constant battle in one's head. And my wife is pressing me hard. She wants to go and visit uh, a close friend of hers who's moving to South Africa. Uh, the first weekend in January, which of course is the third round of the FA Cup. So I've yet to negotiate that political minefield when I get when I get home as to what we're going to do. We're putting her on notice now. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yes. Now, Kartik, where can listeners find you on the internet? You can find me at KKFLA737 on Twitter, uh, Facebook at Carter Krishnar. You can send me a friend, friend request. Google Plus, same thing at my name. And uh, uh, all over the web, uh, writing, including a World Soccer Talk. Okay, thanks for listening. You can get a new episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast every Thursday. Every episode is released on SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, iTunes, Audio Boom, and WorldSoccerTalk.com. If you like the show, share it with your friends on social media and give us a review. And Kartik, what should they do? Enjoy your football. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.